This episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast is brought to you by On Point Pomade. Keep your beard and hair looking on point with their line of pomades and beard oils over at onpointpomade.com. Use our code BSP15 at checkout and get 15% off your total purchase order. So thanks again to On Point Pomade for sponsoring our show. This episode is also sponsored by the Bean Bastard Coffee. Head over to thebeanbastard.com and pick up any one of their delicious hand-roasted coffees. Coffee lovers will also enjoy their hand-cut and handmade espresso candles and soaps as well. If you're in the Buffalo, New York area, head to their store located at 448 Elmwood Avenue. And thanks again to the Bean Bastard for supporting this show. Brutally Speaking Podcast is proudly sponsored by Rockabilia.com. With over 500,000 officially licensed items in their online store, you're guaranteed to find something you need. Use our code BRUTALLY and get 10% off your total purchase order. Now on to the show. People say you have to have a lot of passion for what you're doing. This rings true because it's so hard that if you don't, any rational person would give up. It's really hard. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. I am your host, John, and this episode's guest is Adam Crisco, new head coach for the Pennsylvania Kings. And uh, this was actually brought to me uh, because of me working at the bar that I work at. And, you know, we have a, we're a regulars bar predominantly, and so many interesting people uh, that have been coming to that bar have worked in the industry at one point in time or another, you know, are successful business people, people who work, you know, blue collar jobs, you know, it's all, that's what's great about our bar that I work at is, you know, Anchor Bar is that it brings so many different people uh, together. And it was funny because one of our regulars, um, one of our regulars, Han, uh, actually comes in all the time and, you know, watches a lot of the sports and stuff and was kind of surprised to see me, you know, wearing, I think it started with my Jerry Stackhouse bullets jersey and he was like, oh shit. And then, you know, we started talking about basketball and how I got into basketball and the era of basketball that I started with and, and have been a fan of ever since. And, you know, knowing a lot about the NBA, knowing a lot about old football and baseball and so on and so forth. And, you know, just again, the outward appearance that most people assume is that I'm not into sports uh, when that couldn't be further from the truth. And so he had mentioned because uh, he knew I had a podcast and asked if I had ever had a, any sports people on. And I said, no, I was really close to getting this person and I'm still hoping to get him on down the road. But from our G League team, uh, but it just kind of fell through uh, due to them, you know, making a playoff run at the time. And he goes, oh, my buddy actually started uh, our team here in Grand Rapids, the Cyclones. Uh, which then became the G League team for the Pistons and so forth. And, you know, he used to play semi-pro ball. He's been overseas. You know, now he's a head coach and he coaches and all that kind of stuff. He's got a crazy story. I think, like, you should, you guys should link up and, and have a chat. And this is that chat. And it's definitely one where I think, you know, you may see it and go, like, I don't know who the fuck that is or, you know, has no name brand recognition to someone who maybe listens to the show to hear the musicians I typically have on. But I don't think the story is any less interesting. Actually, I think it's it's equally as interesting because very much like music, 
it's kind of a one in a million shot that you're going to be successful and you're going to be one of the top athletes in the world that's playing very much like it's just the same to be one of the top bands that everyone knows and has success in the touring industry and so forth. And it's, it's one of the things when you hear Adam's story, it's why I think it makes him such a great coach because it wasn't easy for him. Playing basketball was easy, but it was a lot of the things that happened to him along his career and along the way in life that I think have made him a great coach, made him a great person. And it's just an inspiring story to hear. And it was one where, you know, it's it's a great guest because I didn't really have to talk a whole lot. I just, you know, let him go. And he tells such an interesting story about just his life and the things he's gone through and the places he's been and the lessons he's learned and, you know, where he's at in his life now and what he's trying to do as a coach for these young men and the players that are coming to him, hoping to, you know, get to these next levels uh, in, in basketball as a pro pro athlete. And to me, that's, that's what's interesting about this. You know, one of my favorite shows to listen to is Stoke the Fire. And one of the reasons I love it is because it puts a spotlight on quote unquote everyday people people that you don't know who they are, but they have incredible stories. And that's something that I kind of want to borrow a little bit from, but I want to do it within avenues of things I enjoy, which is sports. I'd like to get more athletes on because like I said, I think there's a lot of commonalities uh, that you can hear through talking to these athletes who have traveled the world and, and a lot of the things they've learned and experiences they've gained. Uh, and it's just, it's fun and it's, it's motivating. Uh, for me, I like to surround myself with people who are go-getters, achievers, and all that kind of stuff because it motivates me to do the same. So without further ado, let's get into this lengthy chat with Adam, and I'll talk to you all on the other side of it. I remember going to that. That was a that was an interesting deal. I didn't really kind of get the uh, I don't know, like the reason for it. It was like going to a small little bar that's super packed with people uh, early as hell on a Tuesday. Uh, I think we played some pool or something. You know, that's fun. But uh, I don't really understand Pulaski days. So I'm not Polish. You know? I'm not either. I'm a member of a hall. And you can get drinks stupidly cheap um, the other times of the year. But I know this like one weekend basically keeps all of the halls more or less in the black all year. That's <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah. It's like most of the people obviously celebrating it probably aren't bullish. Uh, no. I don't think you have to be, obviously. But uh, well, it's like St. Patty's Day. It's just an excuse to get drunk, in other words. <laughs> Pretty much. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you've listened to a couple episodes at this point, potentially. So, you know, that this is pretty much just a loose conversation really, but, uh, you know, Hey, thank you for, for coming on. I know we barely know each other. So this is always, it's almost exactly how this podcast normally is. But, um, I know our conversation the other day actually has me feeling really interested to kind of talk about, you know, wherever we go. Cause the, the, predominant thing was you know talking to a mutual friend of ours that we kind of wanted i wanted to kind of segue a little bit more in, into sports and have people from that world on and 
you know, what's interesting is even kind of in, in following you now on, on Facebook or being friends as it were, um, you know, it's funny because it, it feels like so much of what you do isn't necessarily rooted particularly in sports, but it's more of almost like being a life coach, like being a mentor of sorts and, and kind of finding uh, ways to encourage other people to unlock that potential in themselves that maybe they don't see. And I think beyond that, I, I think that's really admirable. And I think that's a re- something everyone could use honestly at this point in their lives is uh, that person that kind of champions them to want to be a better person. Yeah. Um, thank you for noticing that. Uh, that, that is kind of a trickle down effect. And a lot of the uh, reasoning behind that goes to my, my mentors, peers and other people who've inspired me. So that, and that's kind of the easy part, right. To, uh, to inspire others. Um, it's a lot harder to receive inspiration and to do something with it. Um, you know, being on the other side of that sometimes. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not super hard to, uh, like for me in general, I guess maybe part of one of my gifts or something, uh, to help people find a little motivation. Hmm. Um, I certainly like, like when you're hearing me, uh, when you're reading that on Facebook, rather, or on social media, you're kind of hearing me uh, maybe in your head if you've met me before. And if not, you're kind of just hearing that voice in your head of someone that you would think would be a good motivator. And so I guess I just try to sound like that. I've heard that. I've heard that from many people in my life, the, the motivating voice in your head. Um, and so I know that there's a lot of people out there that share a similar path to mine. You know, my page is pretty diverse, but we've all been through struggles. So uh, I like to put out stuff like that. I talk about basketball a lot on there, but I talk about uh, overcoming things, too. And I talk about, um, you know, more wholesome stuff. I try to not steer too much into other areas because um, one of the things I kind of learned as I got into basketball and realized I was stuck in it for life is that um, <laughs> people kind of like, not everyone's going to like you. Mm. Uh, and that, that's, that's in life in general, but it's kind of like personified when you get to the point where like, I guess you have fans. So, or, or, or more so like, what's the really weird stigma about that is like, maybe these people aren't even your fans or never would be, but because they don't like your viewpoints, they, try to highlight some things you say uh, in a means, in a way of trying to hurt you um, professionally. And so that's why my page kind of looks the way it does. Um, I have some strong viewpoints in life. And I think if I shared all those and was very outspoken about a lot of those, a lot of my friends would start to disappear. But um, I appreciate my friend group for who they are. Um, and, you know, I can, I can always mute them for 30 days. Or- <laughs> I appreciate you noticing about my social media, but yeah, that's social media today has become so much more of the conversation, right? I mean, we're using it now. So um, you kind of have to, well, I don't know. Um, If you take that kind of thing serious, especially considering like, yeah, you have a following, um, then yeah, it's good to be careful what you put out. So well yeah actually you know i know you you uh, and coach i guess coaching is just the better way to say it you know you coach a lot of young athletes um is it hard to kind of 
teach there. I don't, I don't know if teaching is the word I want to use. I, I'm kind of figuring out my way through the, the question a little bit in my head currently, but is it hard to teach kids who basically have always grown up with social media and always grown up with these, these ancillary voices constantly, you know, making fun of them, telling them whatever, like just the noise basically of trying to teach them to block that out and to kind of focus on a, the task, whether it be, you know, you know, practice or, you know, learning your plays or things like that, like just kind of have, is it, cause I mean, we're old enough to remember a time and you know, where the internet didn't exist and we didn't have social media and stuff like that. So that wasn't really something when we were playing sports that we had to worry about, you know, it was the, you might hear chatter in the hallways or whatever, cause someone maybe saw your game and you're like, Oh man, you suck. Or you guys lost. And that would be about it. But now, you know, like we talked on the phone the other day, you know, kids are constantly enamored with just feedback, whether it be negative, positive, whatever, it's just noise. And I can't imagine what it would be like for you to kind of have to, you know, teach kids the rudiments of the game and so forth, but then also have to be like, block all that shit out. Hey, put your phone down. Like, you know, da, 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 da. like almost being like a parent of sorts, but I, I don't know. Like, I just kind of was thinking about like, have you noticed how that's affected your, your kids that you, you coach at all, or even the adults even too. Um, so yeah, I work mainly with adults in the basketball league, but, um, we're always around kids and we're always doing youth clinics and stuff like that. So yeah, the, and, and a lot of kids are coming to me as they transition from high school to college and college into the pros. Um, so yeah, there's kind of like that fatherly role or that advisor role that I do take on for some people. And when I say fatherly, I use that very lightly, but as far as like guidance role, for their basketball careers um, or their ambitions in sports sometimes. Yeah. You have a lot, of, a lot of people come to me for that um, just because, you know, for instance, social media, it's easier to reach out to someone, you know, through this, uh, through these means than it is to try and get a face to face sometimes. So um, <clears throat> in, in regard to that, that interaction and how that goes down, I'm able to get a, I'm not able to translate a lot of information out there to people, but to, to more to what you're saying, um, I'll go back to this probably a lot as you get to know me, but sports has a way of helping you sometimes with the problems that are out there in life, the issues that you may face. So, you know, you're talking about like the noise that's out there and the stuff that's just constantly being blasted into your eyeballs every time you scroll away with your thumb um sports are a great way to tune that out sometimes um getting out there on the field the court whatever what have you the baseball diamond out on the ice um that's going to keep you from hearing a lot of the wrong stuff throughout the day and as young people you, you kind of if you're an athlete my age or whatever you can look back and say yeah uh sports helped me avoid some of the pitfalls that were out there in life. Um, that's one way to look at the glass uh, being half full. Uh, also, you know, you talk about playing in competitive environment and there being a lot of, a lot of crowd noise. Um, you know, that's where that comes from. As an athlete, you're taught to kind of block that out, and just go out and do your job and enjoy the game that you love without too much interference from all that peripheral stuff. Because at every game, there's usually fans for you and fans against you. So, um, you know, I, I do teach kids, you know, that kind of a focus. So it's easier to use that 
means to convey that when we're talking about the problems in life and how to dig into your work as a way to handle them. But that doesn't always, you know, fill the glass the rest of the way. That's not always the answer. And you can't just dive even harder into work, AKA sports for some athletes uh, to try and solve all your problems. So, um, yeah, social media can be an issue for people. I understand that as far as like what they read and how that affects them, what they listen to also what they read about themselves, um, stuff like that. So, but also, you know, there's a lot of positives to it in my mind. So it's kind of give and take situation. You got to learn to filter it. Um, because you know, the majority of the kids that we're working with right now, as far as like in our adult league and the guys that we try to help get into our league, uh, they reach out to us through social media. We don't know if they knew me already, they would already know kind of just by watching my social media or whatever, uh, where to show up to try and go get a job in basketball, or they would briefly reach out real quick, you know, Hey Adam, we've met here or there and I'm just connecting with you again to get some info from you. But you know, the large majority of guys that are coming into the league kind of don't know us or they know me barely. They heard about me through a friend or, you know, I have basketball in my background and picture stuff. So they clicked on it. Um, <laughs> so, they, you know, that just one thing leads to another. A lot of times, too, people are sending their family members to me, which you have to. Um, that's kind of like a business for right? Like in like the real estate world or something like, hey, my friend's looking to buy a house. You got to take it serious. So um, I do receive a great deal of incoming traffic from random people that I don't know. And sometimes it's hard to filter because you want to help everybody. But at the end of the day, I use this phrase a lot. Basketball is not for everyone. So to be encouraging and uplifting on social media is one thing. But when, when it gets down to the nitty gritty of it, um, like especially at the pro levels, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a how's the best way to put this and not crush everyone's dreams. It's kind of a small <laughs> crowd. So. I don't like necessarily like, you know, you'll get a lot of people from overseas, for instance, trying to contact me. And I and I have a hard time helping those individuals because it's not as easy as telling them, well, just pull up to one of our regional combines in Chicago or L.A. or Louisiana or something. They have to actually figure out how to find a house here to boredom and, and et cetera. Whereas the other way around, when an athlete goes to play overseas, they've got all that probably provided for you and they're paying you enough money to uh or you can figure it out yourself if you need it to. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really get into social media until like 2009, mm. which was around the time I moved to Grand Rapids. And uh, I think it was my friend Jeremiah Hamlet, who used to coach. Uh, he played overseas, but he's a good friend of mine. He coached my Cyclones for a little bit. Um, Jeremiah and his wife uh, were on Facebook. And so I joined them on Facebook one day. Like I just jumped in, so kind of been at it ever since. And I do have a marketing degree. So uh, I enjoy using Facebook because I learned it at a young enough age, or I mean like a young enough age for like how old the platform was. Facebook wasn't very old back in 2009, relatively speaking. So I learned how to navigate on it pretty quick and just applied the marketing mindset I previously had to try to um, use the, use a platform for what it is, which is just network. So, you know, you kind of bring up a few different interesting talking points, you know, 
something that's interesting to me is, you know, you kind of joke, like, I don't want to crush people's dreams, but sometimes basketball to a certain level is not going to be for them. Like there's going to be as far as you're going to go. And that's just where your talent and all that's going to take you. It doesn't mean that you don't have the passion as much as someone who makes it further than that and makes it a career. But I always sometimes on this show talk about like that pivoting point where you realize like the goal I had or the dream I had isn't necessarily feasible for me. How can I pivot and find a different way, a different avenue within this field or this thing that I want to do? So for me, it was always music. I wanted to be in music in some capacity. Did the band thing, realized that wasn't for me. Started booking shows, kind of got over that, then started writing about going to shows and so forth. They're doing uh, features that combined my love of writing, kind of realized that I was getting pigeonholed again and in that capacity. So I started this cause I was like, I'll start my own thing and it'll be what I want it to be. And you know, here we are five years later and it's one of the most successful things I've ever done and has really at 37 reinstilled in me that belief, that old school work ethic of, you know, you bust your ass at something and then you'll see the rewards. And, and that's, that's why you put in the work, the hard, the, the, you know, the long nights, the early mornings, the weekends, all that kind of stuff. And I've never felt this fulfilled at a normal job nor have I ever really seen the fruits of my labor like I have doing this. So I've always kind of found this to be interesting and, and a great story of knowing when to pivot and finding your space in something else. You had talked about having a marketing degree, so I feel like you kind of also see that because you see trends. You're kind of looking for for ways to kind of get in and, and appeal to people and kind of find your people, your niche, whatever, to get your product out there. And in sports, I would say, and especially in the last, I'd say really the last 20 years or so, you know, or maybe 30 with, you know, Jordan basically becoming a global brand unto himself with Nike, Jordan brand, you know, Gatorade and all that kind of stuff, being a spokesperson for different things. You know, that was one of the first athletes we really had kind of see, had seen come up, was a great athlete, but was also great marketing, a great brand, a great spokesperson. So now you're kind of seeing this marriage of the two together. So ideally, the question is, when for you in your basketball career, did you kind of realize that maybe getting to a certain level wasn't going to be attainable for you, but that you could still find your way within it and help others achieve their more success in their career path, as well as kind of the marketing side of becoming a brand yourself? Sure. Um, so... So as far as like playing, we'll go there. We'll start there. Um, I think every athlete could probably point to one area in his career where he says, I really had a, ch uh, a chance here to do this, but this happened. Um, and that could probably go all the way up the chain of command as high as people that you just mentioned, like Blackwell Jordan. Um, so we're talking about like the greatest athlete to ever play the game. Um, probably still has like some regrets, right? Like that two year period where he was out of basketball, his father passed, he went into baseball, et cetera. Um, I don't know this for sure about Jordan or not, but perhaps he regrets that. Now it seems like it's a worthwhile part of his story, right? So I don't want to take anything away from that, but just for conversation, um, <clears throat> you know, maybe he could have had eight titles instead of six. Maybe he could have had 10. Um, if Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf would have found a way to keep that team together. Um, but they didn't. And so Jordan's got six. 
So in reality, we all look at that and we're all enamored by it. It's it's the standard, right? You know, very few people could even hold a flame to that. We're talking like Tom Brady, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Tiger Woods, something like that. But beyond that, I mean, the guy barely has any peers. It's rare air up there. So you look at that and you think, well, there's probably, you know, like nothing that guy would ever desire. And, and I and I can say this with absolute certainty. I don't think that's true. Everybody has regrets. Uh, everybody has a goal or a mission you know, they want to achieve. I, I, I doubt Jordan ever wanted to get divorced. We'll just put that one out there. Um, since we know so much about the man's life and it's so public. So, you know, that, that was probably very hard for him to go through. And, uh, and if you're like, well, you want to become this and that in basketball, you got to do this or that. So and when I said, when I'm using these bland terms, I'm trying to fast forward through the conversation. Basically I'm saying like people have these great goals to be exceptional at something. And then they realize they've accomplished it and everyone, they have everyone's adoration and all that. But at what cost, right? Mm-hmm. So you're asking like a, like a, a double edged question because you're like, well, when did you realize basketball wasn't going to be exactly what you thought it was? And that happens for everyone and it happens at the highest levels. I was talking to my friend the other day about like a Mike Bibby, if you remember him. He's kind of a yeah. name, but played at Arizona. His dad is a USA basketball coach and, you know, they have a big following out there in Arizona still. They do a lot of training and stuff. So they're on the scene, right? You know, a guy like that, I mean, awesome career, uh, got to play in like Pac-12 basketball out West, which is just like sunshine and girls and just like partying and, you know, just amazing experience to probably imagine being him on, on campus, like his senior year, uh, where they're projected to finish really high. And then all of a sudden they make it through the, you know, the elite stages of the, the sweet 16, the lead eight, the final four and all that. I mean, you're just the man. People are just drawn to you that don't even like sports. Let's just put it that way. Guys on campus that are, you know, just not of the sports following are all of a sudden at the party or wanting to be wherever you're at or wanting to watch the game. Everybody's paying attention. When it's an event that big, the whole campus, the whole town for that matter is is jumping into the party, right? Um, but Mike Bibby didn't really accomplish anything that would really be considered significant compared to like someone like Jordan. So if you're Mike Bibby, do you say to yourself, like I failed? Absolutely not. Is my opinion. Absolutely not. So I had to, I had to have that conversation with myself one day. And I think kids need to hear that conversation. Adults need to hear that conversation. Pro athletes need to have that conversation at the highest and lowest levels because we let ourselves set expectations sometimes, and that's fine. It's it's good to set lofty ones. But sometimes we also let the world influence where we think we should be. And when I say the world, I mean like everyone else around us. And that has a positive and a negative effect sometimes. Uh, those people can be your parents. They can be your coaches. They can be your advisors, especially when it comes to sports. Everybody wants you to trend upward, right? Mm-hmm. So... You know, the whole goal is to never take no for an answer. Always fight through the pain. Um, you can tough it out. You can do this. Um, I got confidence in you. Just work a little harder. Those are some of the things you'll hear as you're growing up as an athlete. And, yeah, it's really motivating. But 
what happens when you trial that and it doesn't work <laughs> or like in the sense that it doesn't work or maybe you you did it really good for a while but now now you're getting older or now the game has passed you or something happened in your life to where your basketball goals are all of a sudden aren't that important um that's a challenging place to be in so for me in particular i think an area that i could point to that may have hindered my let's say highest level i could have played at the whole could have thing really like i said i don't i don't dwell on that shit it doesn't matter about where i'm at like that like where i'm at today it that has no relevance could i have done this like yeah. that's not who I am today you know that that wasn't my destiny apparently now do i still aspire to do great things hell yeah but you know did i ever want to play in the nba hell yeah did i make it that far no um so I think for me, part of that was, you know, there. <laughs> here's what's funny about like that statement, making the NBA. Let's just start there. I mean, Michael Jordan had kids, right? They didn't make the NBA. <laughs> so there are a lot of household names in the NBA right now that had mother and father or something like that, that played professional basketball. And that's always great when that works out, but it doesn't always work like that. So that's just one factor. What, And that's a genetic factor. That would be a pretty big factor. Like Patrick Ewing's son, who now coaches in the NBL Canada, you would think they're a guy like that. I mean, his dad has connections all over the world. He ended up being a pretty tall guy himself. Uh, why, why wouldn't he be an NBA player, right? But that's one factor, you know, genetic predisposition, the gifts God gives us um, that can contribute to you possibly playing in the NBA. So you take that one factor out. I don't have any NBA parents. And then you look at some of the other factors that were challenges in my life. And you start to realize very quickly, like, man, it's really hard to get into that 400. That 400 is a pretty elite group. And while we sometimes look at the players that are in that and go, God, that guy's trash. <laughs> um, you have to understand that there's a whole lot of people evaluating you that gets you to that point. It's not by luck or accident. Sometimes you draft a guy that you didn't want to draft or whatever, and he makes the team like the Pistons or something, and people question how he's, you know, how long he'll last. And sometimes people wash right out of the league. Obviously, that happens in every sport. You get drafted, and you get cut. <laughs> I was cut from 13 different teams, but I also made 14 different teams. So, um, you know, the, some of the factors for me, let's get back to that. You know, there's a million things we could talk to and give credit to why you could make the NBA. Let's talk about some of the ones you wouldn't. And this, this part I think is like kind of why I want to be on your podcast and talk to other people at a medium where I think they could hear me. We can get all the other stuff out of the way, but then this is like the good stuff, right? So like, this is, this is why I want to uh, be able to share my knowledge with people. So like at a young age, I, I had uh, a very strong foundation family wise. Um, I had good athletic giftings um, and I had every reason, I guess, in the world to have a fair shot at being good at sports. And in fact, I was. Um, and so in my area of Grand Junction, where I grew up until I was in the high school years, um, you know, I was right there with the top athletes in, in my class. And um, even though it wasn't a huge area, we had four high schools uh, in that area to give you kind of an idea. And um, 
you know, I, I felt like I competed well with everyone there. Now you have to understand that that means that, you know, we're not in a major metropolitan area like Denver where I would have moved to when I was a freshman in high school. So the talent there, like I can, I can try to think back now about every, there's never been an NBA basketball player from my town. There has been one guy that got into the Nuggets training camp. So you could say that, but he never made the team. Um, and then there was like a pro kicker um, who kicked for the Bears. And then Musgrave was a quarterback. I think he made the Broncos at one point. And uh, gosh, oh, there's a pitcher who came up after me, probably 10 years my junior now or 15 years my junior. He's a big timer in the major leagues, and I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't know his name, but he's from Grand Junction. Um, and so there you go. There's five names. I can tell you a lot of guys who are awesome ballers from around that area. And we'll get back to how that matters because you asked me like, you know, you're not a pro. So how the hell are you still hanging around? Well, basketball, I'll quickly say has a way of showing you things and everybody at the, in basketball, in my mind matters at some level, we all matter, whether you're a fan or you're a coach working in the NBA, you're a part of the game. So each each contribution to the game matters at some level. Anyway, so I was pretty good in high school, um, but I also was pretty good at leading a double life. So I had legal troubles in high school that stemmed from me dealing with anger and um, I guess resentment toward my parents a little bit because they were going through a divorce and I was not happy with that. So I rebelled and while I was pretty good for a while at keeping it out of the public eye, it spilled over when I kind of, you know, got in trouble living in Boulder. So, you know, when you do anything, when you do something like that, it, it's going to hurt your chances athletically. And so I've, I've almost found that here's, I'm going to pause for a second and talk about that for a second. People wear their failures sometimes like a badge of honor. Because if you were ever an athlete, people are going to start following you up with these questions. Well, where'd you play in college? Where'd you play high school? Where'd you play in college? Oh, did you play pro? Oh, where'd you play pro at? Oh, how many years you play pro? Oh, who'd you play with? So like it's a list of stuff that starts building up, right? And, um, you know, at some point, like, as a fan, they probably don't understand what all you've been through, right? And so without losing my train of thought here, um, uh, I, I was a big believer in my abilities, but I did things that hurt my chances. And I feel like a lot of athletes that never made it, we'll just say, always kind of can, you know, throw, throw this out there for you. Oh, I had a knee injury. Held me back. Otherwise, you know, I'd have been out there on Sunday. And it sounds good and people joke at it, but some guys believe that shit. So, you know, everybody's got that story that's not an NBA player, right? Uh, this is what held me back. So for me, and, I, and, and to close that up, that thought, I think that sometimes they're kind of a joke, but since everyone has one, I'll give you mine. But at the same time, you have to understand it for what it is. Every NBA athlete that's in the NBA currently he could give you an excuse too. The only difference is when he realized that those excuses weren't getting him anywhere, he stopped leaning on those mental crutches and was able to achieve something that 
other people, now just let me put it that way, other people didn't believe he was capable of. He may not have believed he was capable of, but he achieved it. So we all look at that, right? We all look at that part and go, oh, you're in the NBA. But before he was an NBA player, he probably didn't know he was going to make it in there. Other people may not have expected that. There were lofty expectations, whatever. You may have went to a big college, but so 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 that part of it, right? So, you know, Adam, why didn't you make a pro? Well, had legal issues. Um, I, to be fair, my my legal issues weren't just like one little trip, one little thing I did wrong. I was a screw up. Um, I liked some of what I did in the sense of like hanging out with guys who who sold weed, you know, and in Colorado, it's, we're talking about back in the early nineties. That's, <laughs> it's not, especially in my small town, that's not going to get you very much good publicity. We'll just say. So, you know, I, I enjoyed that stuff. Um, that's kind of when like hip hop culture took over the basketball scene. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just remember like the first time I actually ever smoked weed was in Boulder. Um, and Thug Life, the album was just coming out for Tupac. It was before Machiavelli, before he died. And like, it was like Thug Life. That was actually his real transition from, I'll say, the music he was making to the West Coast gangster shit that made him famous. Mm-hmm. So I was swept up in that, you know, BET in the basement, um, Tiga in the basement, which is funny. They announced on my phone yesterday that Tiga in the basement, Rap City is coming back. But like, that's mm-hmm. what I was watching. Yeah, yeah, I just saw that. Like that's what I was watching on TV, and so not not, not to blame my behavior on rap. <laughs> I had influencers that. Hang on, someone's trying to call me, and I'm trying to take the call away. All right, um, those were the people I chose to pay attention to. Hmm. You see how I phrase that? That's yep. that's what I made relevant in my own mind. Okay, so and you can do that with anything. You can take yourself out of that mind warp or you can be stuck right in it. So I chose to be stuck right in. Um, and 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 when people look at that perspective, you're going to have to notice I'm white. So I chose to enjoy that part of culture. Some people are born with that culture all around them. But I chose to admire that culture and listen to rap music and get into that stuff. So anyway because of what you see on there sometimes as a young personal kid, you do, that's a fact, or you try, or you hang around with people who, who do or try, or maybe music mirrors life and we just don't know it. But, um, I was a knucklehead and I found myself in jail a couple of times. Um, nothing very violent, nothing very like sinister or malicious, nothing sexual, nothing, just mainly like, fighting weed um pulled a knife on someone which i you know i'm not proud of but this was stuff that you're like why do you make the nba well i can point to that as possibly being a presiding factor more so the decision making right i don't know that i was really even getting a ton of nba looks there were certain there was a certain point in my career where i was playing good enough i felt like I could use, I could definitely compete physically, but I don't know that a lot of people are still hot on my trail. Um, and here's why. Coaches at the basketball, high school basketball level, if you've got a guy who's screwing up and you've got a guy who's not, 
you kind of take the guy who's not and use your connections to help get him into college instead of your head case kid who may be a pretty good athlete, but he's not even in class or whatever, right? So don't let me paint the picture for you that I was like this horrible person. I just didn't always live what I was taught to live by my parents back then. I wanted to be my own person. And and part of that was just, I'll say thugging it out. I, I, I decided I wanted to hang around that crowd. And so I met a lot of good people in that crowd. It's just funny to look back now and, you know, uh, some of the stigmas are true about a lot of them having died, went to prison or, or, um, you know, dealt with in their life. <clears throat> but at the same time, they're human beings and they're friends with some of them still. Um, and some of them didn't, you know, some of them went to jail, but didn't get incarcerated for the rest of their life. You know, so all the, all the things that teachers and parental you know, role models teach you to scare you away from a life of crime, I think are coming from a place that's a little bit misunderstood sometimes in their guidance because, like, for instance, my friend Artie was born into that shit, bro. I mean, his uncle's in the mob, Mexican mafia. So, like, I do I pity Artie? No. Do I, Does Artie probably wish he had a little bit better chance in life? Yeah. But it is what it is. And so to be like, well, yeah, I started hanging around Artie and those guys when I was just deciding to screw off because I was mad at life. That is somewhat true. But they had their own struggles as well. And they made me their friend just like I made them my friend. So that to, to just place all the criminal element based on my association with them would be wrong. Now, that's what my dad used to think. But uh, I would tell him, you know, that finally I end up saying it's not my friends, dad's me. So anyway, um, I was able to, you know, correct, steer, steer, steer the ship straight there after high school. I didn't even go to junior college until I was like two years removed from high school. So I think I was like a 20-year-old freshman or 21-year-old freshman um, on campus, which was like I was still catching crap from people <laughs> in my age group, you know, like 18-year-old kids that had just come out of high school and walked on Juco campus that are my teammates would give me crap because I'm 21. But anyway, um, I played pretty well in junior college, enough so that, like, I was getting contacted by the opposing team's coaches to, you know, hey, transfer here next year, or hey, have you thought about going pro, or just maybe even just to say after the game, like, wow, I really enjoyed watching you play, even as the other team's coach, you got some hell of fight abilities. And that's kind of when I knew, like, man, there might be something to this. Because when I walked out, when I went to that school to try out at Colorado Northwestern, I was just like, I wasn't even sure what to do with my basketball career at all. It was kind of like, like I thought it was over because I'd gotten in trouble and my high school coach and I had a falling out and I didn't even finish my senior year out on the court at Central High School. I just spaced out. So usually you got to have some film or somebody vouching for you to get into JUCO. Well, I heard about an open tryout. And there were six kids up there at the trial when I went and uh, I was cooking every last one of them, except for one guy, um, a kid named Ronald Rhea, who I, I still have yet to reconnect with since Juco. But he's like one of the only teammates I haven't seen since then. But uh, both of us got offered like on the spot. They were like, hey, we were terrible last year. We don't have any problem admitting that. But we also want to let you know, like, we need players. And I was like, well, lucky for you. 
my dad drove me all the way up this mountain into the <laughs> northern part of the rocky crag to uh hopefully get a scholarship offer and uh we're not too picky right now so i'll take it so i signed my letter of intent literally an hour after i had my first workout with them which is pretty untypical you know you talk about the recruiting process and all that what's happening today and how kids get ranked and all that shit when they're in sixth grade i have some sixth graders that are ranked that i work with help but uh seriously like no one at that point was really saying my name so all of a sudden i got a coach that's like yeah i believe in you i was like well obviously it was their athletic director they hadn't even hired a coach yet <laughs> so imagine walking up the campus and like you don't even know who the coach is. Coach ain't there. Oh, there is no coach, but we want you. I, I, I kind of like, well, this is a little weird, but what the hell? I mean, I don't have anything else going. So um, junior college was a trip. It wasn't like what I perceived regular college to be. And in fact, I went to it two after that. So, you know, it was like very isolated, way up in the mountains, maybe 400 people on campus, with all the mm-hmm. teachers and everybody. And then like another thousand down in the town, if that. <laughs> so it's like uh well the way that i looked at that was like hey this is your chance to go like you know in uh dragon ball z when they go up to that little cloud planet and they train up there it's like the different gravity and they can train faster and when they come back there they're like 10 times as long as if they would have spent time on earth training that's kind of how i viewed that whole experience <laughs> like the air up there was so thin like just running up a hill would be like running up three hills. Um, right. So the conditioning I got there was just out of this world. It, it really did shape my game. I was always very active basketball player. When I say that, I mean, somebody that's doesn't stop moving when he's out on the court. Basketball is a little different than most sports. It's always kind of moving, but you notice nowadays, I don't know. I don't want to be critical of any players in particular, but <laughs> some guys just stand there. So, um, you know, and, and it just that comes from lack of knowledge. And just because they're in the NBA doesn't mean they're playing the most beautiful version of basketball. But if you ask me when the ball's moving and everybody's working with each other and they're moving themselves and playing, working hard for each other, running up and down playing defense, that's when basketball is at its best. So I'm up there with like all this uh, air in my lungs. I have to send this message one second. Yeah. I'm up there with all this air in my lungs. I'm, I'm young. I'm getting a fresh start at basketball. And I'm just enjoying the chance to be far away from everything, in fact. Kind of like my little basketball oasis where I can just train and, like, you know, we got this tiny gym and nobody's in there. There's no competition for the weight room or anything like that. And uh, I can just use this experience to get better. So that's what I did. Um, I got a lot uh, I started jumping out of the gym. I remember being in practice one day. A couple of my teammates were down there working on their game. I think they were playing like one-on-one-on-one or Chicago style. familiar with that. And uh, I'm down on the other end working on dunks just because, like, my favorite my favorite dunks, my favorite athletes, basketball players, were all dunkers. But I have more pictures on my wall as a kid of Sean Kemp than I did Michael Jordan. So I was down there practicing my dunks. You know, Vince Carter was really big at that time. Obviously, Kobe too, but I was more of a Vince fan. So I was I was doing a dunk, and my teammates, after I did the dunk, they stopped. They were playing ball on the other end. Like I said, they stopped. I kind of remember hearing, like, quiet all of a sudden. 
And I was like, I wonder why they aren't shooting no more. Maybe just, maybe the gym's closing. So I'm just over here in my own world, looking around. And I noticed they're all looking at me. And uh, I think my friend Derek Lemuel, who he's still a good friend of mine, uh, he was down there. And he looked at me and he goes, God damn, dog. I said, what? <laughs> what the hell? Like, is there the fire alarm go off? Is somebody just walk in the gym and... You know, or do you guys smell a fart or something in here? He says, man, that donkey just did was nasty. <laughs> then the other guy comes in. Yeah, dude, that was sick, man. You looked like Kobe up there. I'm sitting here thinking, like, what? <laughs> like, how do you take a compliment that serious? Are they trolling me? <laughs> uh, I mean, I know I'm down here working on my game. I'm dunking and stuff, but, like, you know, they were just – they were. that was the first time my teammates had ever been in awe of me. So, for me, that was a new experience. A lot of the guys in my high school basketball team just talked shit to me my whole career. Thanks a lot. Uh, well, I won't say their names. They know who they are. But, like, you know, they were hard on me. So, like, you know, having teammates sometimes, that can be tough. But also, you know, when you get that praise, it makes it all worth it. So, like, they're kind of acknowledging how, how much better I'm getting at dunking and stuff. And that was affirming for me. I was like, man, all right. Some of this weight room stuff's really paying off. Uh, another time I I was playing in a game against Western Wyoming. Actually, no, this was against Southern Idaho. Southern Idaho at the time was the number one or number three ranked junior college in the nation. They came to our house to play us. And like I said, we weren't very good, but I had a highlight in that game where I broke out on a fast break and their big man was the only one back. And uh, I didn't really – I knew he was there out of the corner of my eye. I didn't know it was their big man. Um, I just decided I was going to dunk it. Uh, I had wide open lane. You know, it's just me and him. So I go up to dunk it. I was I kind of jumped with two hands, and he collided with me at about the dotted line area, I remember. Um, so that gives you an idea where I took off from. And I'm up in the air, so when he hits me, I had two hands on the ball. When he hits me, one of my hands kind of like rocked off the basketball you know, and I use it like while I'm in there to keep my balance, keep myself airborne. And then I flush it with the other hand. And uh, <laughs> I dunked all over that dude. And my teammates, as I was going back the other direction, I could see him start to spill out onto the court out of excitement. And then like, it's two. And the ref actually like stopped the game because the ball went bouncing around and like off the court and he had to stop and get the ball, but kind of like, because our team wasn't acting, you know, in a professional fashion, they were like, hooping and hollering down the other end of the gym. And, uh, if you want to look that guy's name up, his name's Uche Ukapur. He did in the NBA, but well, who was it? Okafor, not Jaleel Okafor. That's a, that's, that's somebody that's actually in his family. But, uh, Uche was a big time, center for the Bobcats. Okay. Anyway, name, name sounded familiar, but I was going to say, I think Jaleel, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong dude actually played for the drive and then basically got out of the league. Yeah. 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 Jaleel, uh, so the old four I'm talking about is like African big, yeah. tall African guy, six foot, yeah. six, 10 African guy. Yeah. But yeah, he was just transitioning into the United States via Canada. He actually lived in Canada at that time. And that junior college had some kind of an agreement. Uh, I think with, you know, 
United States and the Canadian government, some of the work Canadian students become really cheap to go to that college. And that's how they figure out a way for him to come to the United States to play basketball. So mm-hmm. that's why he went to college. And then from there, I believe he went on to UConn to play. Mm. But anyway, my dunk on Oak Four, my teammates are going nuts. Ref stops the game. I, I just remember that moment. And then I remember after the game, the president of the university. <laughs> he walked out onto the court and he said, Adam, that was a hell of a dunk. I said, well, thanks, sir. He says, I ain't never seen a white guy jump that high. <laughs> so, so I was like, man, okay, that's some serious, some serious praise. So um from junior college, um I went on to play uh Colorado Mesa Division II back in my hometown of Grand Junction and again got in my own way. Um I was living on campus or basically a house across the street from campus, and I was trying to pay my own bills. I had a girlfriend at the time and then we broke up. And when we broke up, I didn't have any roommates. So I started. <laughs> great, great. Well, actually, the crazy part is I had two jobs. So that kind of gives you uh, an understanding of why I'm a big fan of this new NIL stuff. Yeah. Because as a college kid, dude, even living in a town where my dad lives, my dad wasn't all about the handout at all. He wanted you to earn your money. So um, I couldn't just go run into him. I had two jobs. I worked at a pizzeria and I worked, I see worked at two food restaurants at this time while playing basketball and um, full course of classes and uh, had a girlfriend, right? Mm. An apartment. So, you know, living a, living a, a young adult life, young adult costs. Right. And so um, when she moved out, I didn't have any roommates. So I was like, well, this little two food jobs I have is only like paying my rent. I got to do something for my utilities and, you know, I need, I need other stuff. I need my car to get fixed and I need like some new basketball shoes, you know, some necessities. You know, I'm not trying to live a baller lifestyle. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. I'm trying to get some power. So um, <laughs> that, that was a trying period because word got around on campus that I was doing that. And the head coach at that college was a very, prototypical old white guy. He was like really conservative, uh, very much about the church life and all that stuff. Right. And um, he knew me from before I left to go to Juco as kind of a troublemaker in the, in the Valley because he'd been coaching in, in that Valley forever at that college, um, Grand Valley, which you, you know, Grand Valley state university. There's so many ties to like Grand Rapids and West Michigan to where I grew up in Colorado. It's crazy. But uh, and now you guys have the. I'm not even going to talk about how the G League teams now the Nuggets team that makes me want to cry. But we'll get to that. <laughs> but um, but um, the Grand Valley is where I grew up, and so Coach Heaps knew every kid in the Grand Valley was any good at basketball, right? I mean, he recruits from the only D2 college in that area, so if you were any good, he knew who you were. And I would, to be honest with you, I would crush his players, but he just did not like. Um, and so when he did give me a chance and then he heard stuff about me, it was over before it started. Um, and I actually remember my senior year being off the team. Here we are kind of re- history repeating itself, which is odd because I talk about that a lot. Um, here I am playing against his, his varsity team. They needed someone to scrimmage and I didn't play there my senior year. So 
He needed someone to scrimmage. So I go get, and this is funny. I'm, I'm not going to say these dudes' names, but these were the guys I sold weed with. Who <laughs> <laughs> had been kicked off the football team. One had went to junior college with me and was what, attitude issues. Wasn't on Jim Heaps' basketball team. Another one uh, was a basketball and a football athlete. But I think him and the coach didn't see eye to eye. And then he had one guy that was on the basketball team who was ineligible because of grades, or I think he was trying to go to the NFL or something like that. So he stopped hooping. So it was like five guys who all could have easily played on his team, or at least, you know, you're talking some pretty athletic kids. Anyway, that was the second time that I played against the Mesa State team. I'll go back to the first time. The first time was in junior college, our junior college scrimmage Mesa State. And this was after I walked into this guy's office and asked for a job, and he said no. So that's why I went to junior college looking. We played them in our gym. Mesa State actually came to our tiny little gym way up there and played us in a scrimmage, and I was destroying them. And in, 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 in uh, college levels, at, at the preseason, I think back then, you're not allowed to keep score. It was just kind of like a, you know, a workout really is like a practice against each other. It's not an official game. Right. But we were and so bad that in the unofficial third quarter of this game, he literally pulled his team off. <laughs> and I had just hit a three at the top of the key and I had turned around to look at him and his assistant coach, coach Sh- uh, Chance. <laughs> these are two small guys in my opinion, right? You know, they shunned me. They turned their nose up at me. So now I'm looking back at them and I'm just, the biggest smile you've ever seen. So that was the first time I cooked. So fast forward to my senior year, you know, we've had our run in together and I know I'm never going to play for Jim Heaps again, but he had talked to one of the kids that played on the team with him the year before and said, I need some guys to scrimmage. And that person called me because like I said, there's not many basketball players in that town to begin with that can play at a high level. Um, And obviously I'm one of the better ones. So yeah, Adam, we're going to go scrimmage the college team today. Bring your butt over. So I crossed the street, you know, probably smelling like weed. But I took it serious. And went there, and we, we, just, we just took them. I remember my buddy that was on the team with me was from New York. He had a, a friend in visiting from New York. And what I remember distinctly most wasn't all the time I dunked in that game. It was what this dude said afterward. He's like, man, y'all killed them dudes. They had a team of all white guys, right? The, the college team was all white guys. And here I am, the only white guy on the other team of all black guys. He was like, I don't even know why them white boys want to play, man. You got the you got the only white guy on your team. He out there leaning on him, dunking on him. And I'm sitting here hearing him orate what he just saw happen. And I'm laughing my ass off because, like, I really was leaning on him. Like, I'm, I'm cocking it back as far as I can to throw down a dunk because I got something to prove here. And for some reason, I was hitting every shot from two feet into 20 feet, 23 feet. I was just hitting everything. Um, and so, and I actually was playing, I remember I was playing on a bad ankle that day. Um, when somebody had told me about the scrimmage, I was like, I better go get in shape again. Cause this is going to be in front of live fans or whatever. And I hurt my ankle like four days before this thing went down. <laughs> so I go, limping in there thinking I'm not going to be able to play much, but I'm going to tough it out. And I ended up having this great game. So anyway, um, that was there. There's a little bit of the history of like the college interaction I have. So it didn't, you know, for most guys that go to the NBA, you hear about them. They're highly recruited in high school, maybe go to a prep school afterward. Then they're, they're talked about on their college campus. They have like these Hall of Fame type careers at the college. And that's what gets people talking about them at the pro level. And then before you know it, you're seeing them on TV again at the pro level. 
Um, but I'm here to tell you that's just how most of it goes. It doesn't go that way for everybody. So right. my career kind of ended like that unceremoniously. Um, getting back to the the side of the darker side of things, I had a f- group of friends that was the ones that were helping me uh, sell weed, we'll just say. And one of them, who was like our main connect, he ended up getting busted. And mm-hmm. like when I say busted, they put an explosive charge on this man's apartment door blew the door off the place and went and ransacked the shit out of his little place you know and like i found out about that a day or two later and i was like you know what this is bad you know this is somebody i didn't spend a great deal of time around i mean he's he's an interstate drug trafficker it's not like he's my best friend or anything you know i just go <laughs> and get a little weed here there and, you know here i am my lawyer would probably tell me shut the hell up out of me but you know, it's part of life. And and so anyway, they got indicted. Like they, they had been watching those guys. So if you want to say I dodged a bullet, you probably could, because while I wasn't involved with the level of drugs that they were, they were, they were selling everything, man. Um, I did uh, get myself affiliated with them at some point. So when they all went down, like I, I was shook by that. Like my girlfriend, even that's around the time she moved out officially. Um, cause she had moved back in <laughs> anyway. Uh, I was just like, I got to get out of this town because I grew up here my whole life other than when I was in college or, or uh, high school. So in high school, I did go over to the Denver side of thing, mm-hmm. but you know, back in college again and, and back in Grand Junction, I was like, it's too small. I know too many people, too many people know me. And you know, now this has happened and I'm like, I just don't, Think this is the best place for me i need to change so my mom at that point had moved to uh benton harbor michigan mm-hmm. and, uh, actually saint joe to be more specific which if you if you if you're me and you see the world the way i do that's the white side right everybody there knows it nobody wants to talk about it but that's what it is the side with the courthouse on it the side with the jailhouse on it the side with all the restaurants the side with the beach on it the side with the um, amateur attractions, that's the white side of town. The black side is the black side in St. Joe, Ben Harbor, Michigan. So there's a town I lived in for a while that I know a lot about. Um, I, have, I have a lot more friends on the Benton Harbor side than I do on the St. Joe side because of that pretentious description I just gave. Yeah. But anyway, long story short, um, I got out there to live with her, and that's kind of where my pro career took off. Or began, mm-hmm. uh, and timeline wise, as I say, timeline wise, what year is this roughly? Yeah, so let's see. Graduate. Well, I didn't even actually ever graduate college. So, 2002 was the last time I was in Colorado as a college athlete, I think, and I left and came out to Michigan. Okay. Um. So I, I started playing for like, um, gosh. Was the first team I ever played for? I think it was the Colorado Kings, a team in the ABA out in Colorado that was traveling through the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I heard about a network and they needed some players. So I played with them on there like a tour throughout the Midwest. And then I think that's how it went down. It's, it's been a while, bro. But then I got picked up by a team called the IBL All Stars, which was like the league, the league of the IBL was the league. And they had like a traveling All Star team. Um, for guys looking to get into their league and then also to play teams like if someone didn't show up to a home game, they would send us or an away game or whatever. So, like, I played in that league for, I don't know, 
six, eight months on their all-star team. And then I was getting offers from teams within that league after that. Um, so that's kind of where it all started for me. And then I would eventually play internationally in South America. Um, I can't really say when it happened again, like where I knew I, it was over for me to go to the NBA, but I will say that like in 06, I had another um, stint with drugs. That is what got me sent to prison. So, um, like I said, you have like the the A the path A to get the NBA, and you have like path B potentially get to the NBA or whatever. And then there's CDE, but like the two main ways are either you're recruited straight out of high school, or you make such a splash on like the international market that you can get that kind of call up. And keep in mind that G League back then was just getting going. Like the Bakersfield Jam and I had conversations. Um, and went to a few practices and I played one game, but the G league wasn't like nothing that people didn't even respect it back then. Um, there was not even like amongst NBA people. Was it even like really given much notoriety or anything? It's not at all what it was today. Um, it's not at all what it was then what it is today. So, um, uh, you know, my playing career went and bounced around a lot in the United States, but when I had that, you know, that next run in with drugs and went to prison that, that I think for me was kind of the point where I realized like a lot of things about myself personally, but if you want to talk about basketball wise, I kind of knew it was over. Hmm. Um, you don't really go from being locked up to a household name in the NBA. The NBA is very political and I have to run and grab my phone charger. So I'll keep talking about yeah. my background. Um, NBA is very political in the sense that they have an image and a license to protect. So um, anything that could potentially hurt that image or license or, or fan experience, you know, they're quick to cut that out. So just, you know, like, like, let's talk about like real quick, like Michael Vick in the NFL when he went through those legal troubles with the dog, um, you know, drowning dogs that he was having fight or whatever. Mike Vick, I think, did get back in the NFL, but man, people literally like barbecued that man. Yeah. And the NFL like blackballed him basically. And, you know, rightfully so, what he did was pretty, pretty awful. But when you do something like that, like it just really hurts your chances, no matter how, how good you were at the sport. And right. so, hang on a second. And so, if you already were in the sport, yeah, you might have a chance to recover after that. But like, if you were never a big name, yeah, doing something like that to your career is really going to hurt you. So I had to fight a lot of that. Um, but that is also part of my story and who I am. So uh, <clears throat> there's a lot to like unpack there. But there is going to be a time and place, and there has been a time and place where that that testimony of mine has actually helped certain athletes. Um, perhaps cope with why they didn't make it or help them get back on the right, you know, frame of mind to actually make it. Um, so that's kind of the answer to all that, uh, prison shut it down. Now, <clears throat> what did I go to prison for? You know, that that's best probably left off the podcast, but it had to do with drugs again and I'm clean now, but to get clean, it took a lot. And uh, so for anyone that's ever struggled with drug addiction or anything like that, um, you know, 
I've always wanted to be somebody that could help them see uh, the more positive side of what life looked like if you can get that under control. So that's, that's kind of why, like, <clears throat> when people say, well, you know, how good were you? Did you ever play against this guy? I've played against some of the best people that you've ever heard of as far as basketball wise, whether it be in a pickup setting or like a pro setting or a, a private gym. And I know where I fell amongst those guys. Um, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say I was like some, you know, incredibly gifted basketball player, but I was pretty good. I was pretty good. There's some people in West Michigan that know that, that would tell you that. And there's some guys around there that were a lot better than me. Um, but just being in that kind of a class in West Michigan, there's some talented athletes in that area. So I'm happy with kind of where I fell and landed as far as like in the basketball landscape. Um, and I'm not at all ashamed of like what happened to me in my life. That's just stuff that happens. You can't, you can't, uh, predict it and you can't regret it. You just got to call it what it is. Um, and I think people learn as they get older that like there's very few of us who have like this perfect story in any industry, you know, everybody's got some chinks in their armor and everybody's got some stuff they've been through. So I, uh, I love talking about basketball, but sometimes it's bittersweet. Yeah. Because there was some unfinished business here or there, but, um, that still, that still sits with me today only in the sense that now when I'm coaching, I'm, I'm still getting to be around the game. I'm still getting to do what I love and help people out with basketball but I'm kind of given like another chance here to prove to myself that I can do this and I can keep growing and learning and, and be the best coach I can be instead of, you know, the focus being on how good I can make a basket, which is at the end of the day, a pretty superficial thing. So, <laughs> Well, I think like it's kind of interesting because, you know, I was just actually talking about this with someone uh, the other day and it was more, we were talking about video games and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm fucking terrible at like a lot of these like shooting games. Like that's, I'm just, I don't have, maybe it's my age. <clears throat> I don't have like the quick, like, Oh, do this, do this. And it's like half the time, like you're playing some of these games and you just get killed by some kid who's been playing the game for, you know, 16, 18 hours a day since it came out. And they just know the ins and outs of that game very much like Madden, like, or, you know, 2k, like some people know that you can run a certain kind of a play and it's always going to work because it's just kind of a glitch or abusing the system or whatever. And I made the comment. I was like, I think I learned very quickly. I'm good at driving vehicles in those kind of games. Like if you got a team and you need to go do something, I'm good at driving. Like oddly, I figured out that's, that's my thing. I go, but, you need that. Like sometimes I, I feel like we are in a weird position societally where people don't uh -oh. want to, don't want to be find their role where they're not the number one, where they're not the guy. And it's, one I, of those uh, words. I'm sorry to interrupt. I have an issue here. My phone is at 1% and it's on the charger. So I don't know if it's going to stay going or not. Okay. Um, I apologize. If it stops for some reason, then it, then it stops. If it keeps going, I'll hang on as long as I can. But go ahead with that thought. I just didn't want you to think I quit on you. No, no, you're good. Um, but it was one of those things where we started talking about more that sometimes we as people are, some of us know that we need to facilitate a role and that it'll create, you know, the greater good for a team uh, in that in that capacity. 
And some people, you know, have a hard time admitting like that they are not the focal point of something of their own story, whatever, you know, we're always the hero in our own story, but as you kind of have, you know, comics and so forth, it's like, sometimes you might be the villain in somebody else's and you just don't know that. Cause it's all about perspective. You know, something that's <laughs> been interesting about sports for me is like, you know, you know, playing track was really the only sport where it's like, I can be me and I can do what I do. And no one else has any bearing on what I do. Cause I wasn't a part of a relay team or anything, but it's one of those where sports teaches you so much about, you know, you are a team and maybe your role, especially in basketball, like, you know, there's what, uh, is it a 12 man roster? I'm trying to remember if it's a 12 or a 10, I think it's 12. Uh, and then you go to the playoffs and typically they do like an eight man roster at that point or an eight man, uh, yeah, roster at that point with, with your bench players that pretty much never play. Um, Eight-man rotation, that's what I meant to say. But it's one of those where it's like you look at someone like, you know, a Luke Walton. <coughs> Dude barely ever played, but, like, he's a role player. He's the guy who's like, you know, when people are getting, like, Kobe would dunk on somebody, you know, he's the cheerleader on the bench. He's the person, you know, kind of going and, and getting everyone excited. I can't remember the Good other example. man of uh, from the Lakers. That, like he was a center and he like shittily danced during their uh the parade after they won, I think their second of three. Uh Mark Madsen. Mark Madsen. Mad Dog Madsen. Yep. yep, Madsen. But I mean it's like again, like everyone loved that dude, but it's like, what did he do for the team? Not really anything. Like in the grand <laughs> scheme of what we saw. Like, you know, you have yeah, all Yeah, just players. on the surface, it's right. probably nothing, but you gotta but consider the, all the reps that the guy's putting into practice against the better players making them better. Right. It's the intangibles that we don't see a lot of times that, you know, make a team better. And I think that's something, you know, listening to your story where, you know, some people, as we you were saying earlier, like, you know, some people could dwell on well and make excuses as to why I didn't succeed. Well, I had this this thing set me up to fail. It wasn't my fault. I was set up to fail because of X, Y or Z. And in your story, you know, like and maybe it's due to your age and the time away from all that, where you've been able to get that perspective of like, I was my own worst enemy in these situations. And I realized that, but what's still interesting is I think the position you're in now where you're able to take your past experiences and, you know, teach other people to kind of maybe hold themselves accountable to maybe be, you know, realize you don't have to be the focal point of whatever, but you're a part of a team and there's still a role for you. And that role is still important for the success of the greater, and I feel like that's that's something I kind of noticed as you were, you know, talking uh, about your experiences and so forth. That I think allows you to probably be in a better position to be a, a good coach, a good mentor. Is that you? You bend the highs and lows. You can talk about the highs, the highest of highs, and the lowest of lows, and it allows you to facilitate these these. I don't want to say outcomes. These experiences for people to where, like I said, you can kind of, you know, explain like, man, I've been where you are but that doesn't mean you don't have like some kind of a value or that you can't overcome these things. Like there's still, there's still purpose, I guess. Oh yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. You're, you're hitting on all true things and you're very observant. Um, in fact, I was a role player, if you want to put it that way. Hmm. Um, and if there's ever such a thing as a minor league journeyman, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably the one to create the term. I am the term because, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't think of any team in particular, with the exception of maybe one, where I was the leading scorer. So, every I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, at the end of the game where they interview the guy who has the most rushing yards or the most passing yards, and then the when you read the paper the next day, it says uh, you know the Chiefs won and Mahomes had 257 yards, and you don't read anything else in that article, really. I mean, the, 
maybe there's, you know, so-so had an interception or maybe they highlight the other team's quarterback. But that's it. Um, the news article, same way. You know, all the talking heads want to talk about Mahomes and uh, his receivers and their chemistry and all that. And then blah, 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 they won the Super Bowl. But everybody forgets, I think, very quickly in today's day of blowing up somebody's image on a television screen to make it so big you can see inside your nostrils, for Pete's sake. <laughs> um, you know, just that in your face, the way so the way media is today, everyone's just so much in your face, so metaphorically and realistically. But <clears throat> they forget that there's, what, 55-man roster in the NFL? Uh, and you're talking about one guy, so there's 54 other guys that also won a game that day. Um, and the large, let's say, there's uh, Mahomes is one of 11 guys on the field. So there's 10 other offensive players. There's 11 other defensive players. There are special teams units. So you add another six or seven guys in there because the linemen probably stay on the field. But then you got the kickers, the punter, the returnmen, the long snapper, the wings, the gunners. Um, and then you talk about the guys that rotate in on offense, the third string and third down wide receivers, third down running back, um, the third down pass rushers, the third down nickel and dime backs that come into the game that aren't starters. So they're already a core of 30, 40 some people we've just talked about. And then you probably have 12 guys or 15 guys that just don't get in the game. But every single one of those guys mattered in what Patrick Mahomes was doing that day. Nothing that Patrick Mahomes did was possible without their contributions. Nothing. So smart quarterbacks, you'll hear him get out there and talk about, yeah, my old, my old line blocked great for me today. But they don't name each one of those individuals. Have you ever noticed that? There's not like, okay, let's just try this. Who's your favorite current offensive line? Well, that sort of gets a little tricky because you can. Are you? Are we talking tight ends as the line or not? Because I mean, they got to pass block just as much as center sometimes. guard tackle. Is there is there a center guard or a tackle in the NFL that you can call out by name? That's your favorite one. Greg Olson. Okay, Greg Olson's <laughs> a tight end. That's what I thought. I was like, actually, uh, what was it? Because he just he got hurt the other day watching the Lions game. But uh, Ragnow for the Lions. There you go. Okay, and you're a homer, right? Like that's your home team, right? I watched. I just um, watch NFL, but yeah, Lions are my home team. And I remember, I remember when Elway won the Super Bowl. I knew like the names of all our offensive linemen, but not since then. And right. so, like you, you probably couldn't name the starting five offensive linemen for the Lions, right? Not this year. <laughs> and I'm telling you, not many guys outside of ESPN analysts or people who closely follow the Detroit Lions for a living can yeah. do that for you either. And there's there's something to be said about that. Patrick Mahomes is an excellent quarterback. He's super fast, elusive. He anticipates well. He's getting more and more aware of scenarios and defenses that are getting thrown at him and how they like to defend him and what to do about it. But there's no way he does any of that stuff without these other five nameless guys that are blocking for him every weekend. And let me talk about line play for a second. Those guys are literally on the field smashing into the other most physical people on earth every down. So the guys who line up on defense, just psychos, dude, ripped out of their minds. Crazy dudes, man, that 
for a living. Like they, they feel no pain. They just like running into things. What? Who creates a man like that? Lord Jesus. And then on top of it, they laugh at you. If you, if they make a play against you, they celebrate if you mess up and they uh, jaw you and talk trash to you. You know how hard it would be to be an offensive lineman. And then you're just, you're just standing out there getting smashed into fingers, getting bent backwards, shoulder, getting pinned to the ground, your legs getting undercut from your own people running into you, uh, getting, you know, help. Spit on probably, you know, Romanowski. Remember that guy? He spit in Terrell Owens' face. I mean, linemen probably spit on each other on accident when they <laughs> smash in there together and that air expels from their lungs and just nasty in there, right? <laughs> Why don't those guys get highlighted? How come they didn't call the center out with Mahomes and say, hey, Pat, we'll talk to you in a second, but first let us give credit to this guy who stood in the middle of the football field all day and took punishment blow after blow. So you could stand back there with your curly hair and look good. Let's talk to him for a second. But that never happened. I mean, I think so, that's, I think that speaks to a greater narrative of of society uh, of the workplace where the person at the top who's not really I'm not saying they're not doing as much work necessarily, but it's the people quote unquote. I mean, the offensive defensive linemen. You know, it's called in the trenches for a reason. You know, yeah. you could look at that almost as a, a metaphor for for the, the grunt workers at any place where it's like those are the people that are getting shit done. So the other people who look <laughs> good can take a lot of the credit. And, and we the people down below are all the nameless, faceless people that are, you know, yep. building the foundation for success for other people. Who owns uh, who owns the Amway Corp? I have no idea. It's the DeBoss family. Is it? OK. Who was their top salesman this year in Grand Rapids district, their home district? I have no idea. I don't freaking know. We don't we don't know. It's a different guy every year, probably. Now that guy, whoever he is, no disrespect to you or the DeVos family or Amway. But for most people, they would know, you know, the boss, Amway, right? They get the credit for that. Right. There's a lot of people working for those corporations. And 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 so so what that goes back to is like I talked about being like a role player and a journeyman. Some people might say, well, like, geez, you were never like top player even. <laughs> Your overseas resume is garbage. You weren't even like the best scorer. I'll tell you what. The dudes who were the best scorers on my team were lucky to have me. And I'll say this. Why? Today, basketball is so self-centered. It's so much around my stats, me taking the shot, the eye in competition not even team just competitive the meeting team the I, yeah there's like three eyes in competition isn't there competition <laughs> two eyes so like <laughs> the game has just changed when i was learning as a basketball player at first before i became really good how to stay on the court you know you're a young kid you're walking in like in my era it was like mormon church they'd have these runs on tuesdays and thursday nights private run um a very Strict kind of a basketball run, no cursing, you know, no, no swearing. I'm pretty sure it was no dunking. Um, <laughs> so, they, so they really didn't like me. But anyway, before I was like ever any good, my dad would bring me and I just sat on the sideline, probably till I was in like high school before they let me play. But anyway, uh, there's like a packing order just to get into this Mormon gym around where I'm from. And um, then you get out there. And, like, if you start taking all the shots, like, 
not going to get invited back. And then another side of that is like, if you shine too much, <laughs> like for instance, you're dunking or, you know, you're like trying to put Michael Jordan in there. They're not going to let Jordan back. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that Mike, that's one gym you're not going to get access to because these guys are like really like almost religious about their, their little week, week, uh, weeknight runs. And it's like, there was like a packing order. Like I said, it was kind of a list also. Like once we got to 12 people, we didn't want to let anyone else in the door. They go out to the foyer and lock the door. So only 12 people could be in there. So like, and then if you were a cocky guy or you came in there running your mouth, it didn't matter how good you were, they would not let you back in. So um, in there, you know, I had to learn to like, what do I do? You know, I can't shoot too much. <laughs> anyway, I would just go get rebounds, man. I'd just go get rebounds. And I was five foot ten back then and full of energy running around crazy. But I would get rebounds and pass the ball to the older guys, you know, who kind of set up the run and let them knock down a couple of threes, you know, and get them involved. And then I'd go make a steal and maybe make a layup and turn back and look and see if he was mad. He didn't I didn't pass the ball to him even though he was open. You know, and then once you kind of earn their respect, then you realize that they're the guys that are out there working hard for you and rebounding for you so you can, you know, help your team win. And uh, the true nature of the sport is then divulged upon you. You know, you kind of become aware of it, is that it's a team game. And uh, if you're the new guy in the gym, the best bet you have to stay on the court is to give the guy who's been in the gym the longest with the most rep who can do it the best, feed him for a while until you get acclimated. So I, uh, for instance, um, there's one guy I really like playing with. His name's Cedric Moody. Now, I've, I've never played with Cedric Moody in a competitive setting, but I've played with him in many, very, um, when I say competitive, I meant professional, like on a pro team. I've never played as Cedric's pro teammate, but I've played with him in a lot of competitive runs in South Bend that are invite only. And, and the gym is packed with D1 players only, and it's there's D1 coaches there that are, looking for talent during the summer and there's ex NBA head coaches in there. I can remember names like Gene Katie from Purdue being there, Steve Lavin from UCLA or sorry, UNLV. So big name coaches just like at our private run at South Bend. But I mean, it's a place to be if you're in South Bend, Indiana, but like um, competition was insane, bro. Insane. Even some of the guys that are three and four years removed from college. Like they, they're there weekly working on their games. So they're, they're, they're sharp, man. Anyway, playing with Cedric, he was so freaking good, bro, that, like, I just knew when he was going to miss. I understand things like the law of probability. I understand things like, ah, here's a simple one. They're both double teaming him. Go grab the ball. Um, I understand things like how to set a pick in the right way, in the right place to get that guy the ball wide open and then make his job easy by rolling to the basket to where he just has to slip it past me and everybody's so focused on him, we get a bucket. I started learning stuff like that. And I swear it was like every time I played with Cedric, we never lost. We never, ever lost. I played against him a lot of times, and most of those times I lost. <laughs> so that tells you how good he is. But when we played together, I'd never remember losing a, a game during any summer, any pickup run at, at Heroes Camp. And it's because, like, you know, he'd drive, he'd, he'd drive to the basket, and the guy's hanging all over him, and he would still find a way to get the ball up onto the rim, and then it would just – roll around for a second and then barely come out like, you know, night was supposed to miss. It just misses on some freak shit. There I am. Tip it back in or dunk it back in. 
And so once I learned to be like, not the guy that really taught me how to be the guy. So while I said in my pro career, I don't have a lot of experiences. I can to where I was the number one scorer. I'm still a scorer, bro. I, I will give you buckets. So like that took a long time to get to that point, And I'm still not on Cedric's level. There's just some guys who are just, they're better. They're always going to be better. Cedric should have been in the NBA. I don't know what his story is about why he wasn't. But that man is an incredible talent along the lines of a Stephon Marbury, Steve Francis type. He was that okay. good. He was really that good. So like <clears throat> being a role player with him on the court is a blast. Are you kidding me? Um, I would have loved to play with him on like a protein. I mean, we would have killed people. I love setting picks for him. I love going and cleaning up his rebounds. I love when he throws me a lob from half court and it lands exactly in that three inch circle I needed to, to where I just got to catch it and put it away instead of like, you know, trying an even harder dunk, which I might miss. Seth's just putting the ball in the cup. He's just landing it there perfectly. And he does it with style. I remember one game, this is going to sound crazy, like I'm bragging or something, but it is what it is. Um, the best players were all there that day. Place is packed. Um, <clears throat> it's a nine to nine. You play every game to 10. It's nine to nine. And <clears throat> I think I got a rebound and I kicked it out to set near half court. And then I start sprinting. And both of the guys that were back on defense, which one was a guy named Darmetrius Kilgore who played at Purdue, exceptional basketball resume. I believe he also was with the Dallas Maverick. He was there. And then a kid named Antoine Harden, who was like a baby Vince Carter. He was like a six foot one Vince Carter. And I'm not exaggerating. He literally could do almost every dunk Vince Carter could do at six foot one. Anyway, they both try to collapse on Cedric at half court after I grabbed this rebound because they don't want to lose, man. You don't want to lose. First of all, it's like a five-game wait to get back on the court because everybody's trying to play, right? So you, just, <laughs> you don't want to lose. You don't want to lose when Cedric's on your team either because he's going to let you know about it. In, in a very few quick facial expressions, he doesn't even have to say anything. The way Just the way he looks at you, like, shit. You know you screwed up. You know he's not going to want to play with you next time. You know you're not as – you can't, you're not even as cool afterward. You can't shake hands when he leaves. Like, hey, Sid. Uh, he just looks the other way. Shit. So, but no, so Sid gets the ball at half court and they jump on him to double team him, which was a smart move, right? But Sid decided, he saw me running and I believe he decided to make the pass at about the time I was crossing half court. By the time I got in the rim area, the ball was just floating perfectly. It seemed like, like just like a moon hanging in the perfect sky. Is just floating there near the rim waiting for me. And so I jump up and I grab it and I reverse dunk it. And place went crazy. Games were then canceled for the rest of the day. The moment everybody was waiting to see happen, happened. We won 10 to 9 on the you know the highest peak of the hour. Everybody was waiting to play. Shut the gym down, right? And um, I remember somebody like on their team coming up to me going, <laughs> They asked me, like, why, why did you reverse that, man? Why did you just dunk it, like, the normal way? Why did you have to go behind your back? I was like, dude, when, when you play with guys like Cedric Moody, the, the, he makes you better. That's, what, that's a sign of great players. He just he makes – I can be more creative. I can take other risks that I wouldn't take in a normal game. And, in fact, he made me reverse that dunk. Cedric's pass was so stinking good, I, could, I had time to reverse it. So, like, 
when you play with certain players, you don't mind being a role player. And especially like, you know, obviously those guys that played with Jordan, when you talk about Pippen, Rodman and, and Kerr, and uh, I'm actually really close to those circles. Crazy enough, as it sounds, the Albany Patroons that I worked for last year, um, Bill Jackson came from that team that I coached last year. So like, um, and then Steve Kerr is a friend of my friends. And then like uh, Cliff Levingston, who played with him, now coaches in our league. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I've never met Dennis Rodman or Scottie Pippen. But like basketball runs deep. That's why I say like like every fan matters. Like once you're a part of the game and you, you get into it, it becomes a lifestyle for you. Like we're all connected. We're just Absolutely. a couple connections, a couple degrees away. So um, anyway, that would kind of sum up like my playing um, experience as like as a player. I really excelled at being good at making the team better. I was like, I was probably one of the first people you could ever call a point forward. Like, you know, like Scotty played that role for a little while. And so did Draymond Green. But your guy that goes out, he's just the hardest worker out there. He's flying around the court. He never gets tired. And that goes back to my training days in Colorado and that thin air. Um, he, he's gritty. You know, I would watch film and hear people in the crowd always say, like, God, that guy's a warrior. And I respected that more than somebody calling me a knockdown shooter or a lights-out shooter. In fact, I knew I wasn't going to be, like, leading the team in three-point percentage. But, hell, I'm out here battling. So to hear people say that when you're watching your own film and stuff, like, that's that's kind of who, what I identified as. And uh, I made my teams better that way. Um, especially when you start playing in the United States and you've got guys all over the court that are, everybody can dunk. Everybody can run fast. Everybody can dribble a little and shoot a little. How do I make myself effective out here? What can I do out here that uh, that's going to keep me relevant? And the answer to that is the garbage work, the tipping in, stealing the ball, being a good guy, so like setting picks. That is such a lost art, dude. I'm an excellent pick setter. I'm a professional pick setter. <laughs> um, you know, but but tipping the ball and diving out of loose bounds, or maybe just understanding the offense enough to know how to move through it at a at the right pace to get people open and dropping the ball. Off. You know, I've had some of the craziest passes you would ever see. If you know, the, the sad part about it is a lot of my career is not on film, but <clears throat> I really excelled at passing the ball and and setting my teammates up, and I loved that part of it. Uh, I don't have to do the hard part. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like yeah. they got to shoot it. I just got to make a pretty pass. Um, and yeah, dunking, dunking is kind of, I'll, I'll point to that. That's what kept me relevant. So like, you're not the best ball handler, right? You're not the best shooter. You're not seven feet tall. So you're not like some great rim protector. I was very good at blocking shots, but like if I walk onto a basketball court right now and stand next to a bunch of other guys, you're going to like, you're not going to point to me and go, oh, that guy's the shot blocker. So that, perception follows you throughout basketball no matter who you are my friend jeremiah like <laughs> he <laughs> he used to harp on the idea that white guys don't get enough respect in the game but it kind of plays into that a little bit like a six five white guy you're not thinking he's a shot blocker now when you're in western colorado and you're in a mormon church and you're one of the taller guys there well you play center same thing at my high school i played center so that's where i got the shot blocking ability from but like my thing was dunking that's how like people knew me. That's how like when you walk into a gym and there's 10 people there and you hear that sound <laughs> and it's that rim breaking and everybody <laughs> turns and looks, that's me hanging on the rim down there, showing off during warm-ups. So like 
I knew that that like a lot of times I probably made teams just because of that. To be honest <laughs> with you, I would go into a tryout and there'd be 10 other guys are working out and everybody's playing along, you know, kind of the same skill level. And then a crazy thing happens and I catch a dunk and somebody falls down and I look good. And, you know, praise God that I had those abilities and also thanks to my former self for working really hard to become more athletic. But like, that's, that's, that's what kept me in the pro circuit. It's cause I could dunk on people. Like, you know, just people weren't used to seeing that really a lot. There's not really like, I could count on one hand, the name of people in the NBA that are famous for dunking that are white. You got Brent Barry, uh, Hayward, Gordon Hayward. And, and look, we're already skipping generations. We're not talking about five current white players. And then like white for, for Jeremiah, <laughs> back to Jeremiah again, not European, like Luka right. Doncic, he can dunk, right? Now he's not necessarily like a high flyer, but like he's European. He's not even American. So you're talking <laughs> about American born white guys that fly through the air. There's, there's very few of us out there. Yeah. Um, Nick Freer. Is a guy from the West Michigan area that played at Lakeshore. Man, he's still doing it, I think, somewhere in the world. If he isn't, it's because he's retired recently. But, like, that dude can fly for a white guy. And that's funny. You have to add that in. If you're a white guy <laughs> who can dunk, that's always what they say afterward. Well, that, I mean, that white boy can jump instead you, of, like, you, just that guy jumps higher. You forgot Caruso, Never. man. <laughs> Caruso. Dude, oh, he, boy, he oh, some boy. motherfuckers on posters. You can't deny that. No, no. And then, uh, you know, there's a few I'm forgetting. Actually, in my hometown of Grand Junction, there's this guy that's like a pro MMA bodybuilder type. And he used to throw down a mean backhanded jam. So, there, you know, all across the world, there's probably white guys who can dunk, but just never made a pro basketball team or whatever. I remember uh, you would know the name Jumpin' Jack Kelly. I'm still friends with him on Facebook, and he's a big name in Grand Rapids. Um, so, but Outside of that, what other white guys in Grand Rapids did you really know that were known for Duncan? Um, Nobody. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, uh, Drew Neitzel obviously was not a dunker. You know what I mean? Nope. <laughs> um, John Mantell, who's a big name at Calvin, he can dunk. Well, he's not like a high flyer. He's more known for being an animal in the post and a knockdown three-point shooter, but a dunk on John. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. John probably would never even watch this. John's such a good basketball player. He doesn't even acknowledge people like us. But anyway, no, uh, John played for the Cyclones. I love him and his brother. They're getting to know those people in West Michigan. They're good at basketball. It's just like a treat. It's always a pleasure. The different communities I travel to and the people that are already involved in basketball before I get there, getting to know them is great. But yeah, so um, what made it to where I almost could have made the NBA probably because I was dunking like guys like that. But what made it to where I couldn't is because I just wasn't ever the whole package. Um, one guy I'll point to who was like my NBA version of myself, who was a friend of mine named uh, Jeff Trepanier. He played at USC, Southern California Trojans. And he got a shot with the Nuggets. And he has some awesome highlights from his stint with them playing there where he had a couple of fast break dunks and just, you know, absolute. I call him uh Jeff Trampoline, you know, because his last name is hard to pronounce. <laughs> and he's, it's like a French last name on a black guy, so people always probably give him shit or don't know how to say his name. I've heard it mispronounced hundreds of times. But anyway, Trampoline Jeff would just fly up there, and, like, that's that's who I pictured myself being if I were ever to be in the NBA. We were kind of, like, the same age at that time. And, you know, that's who I, I was like, man, I, if Jeff can do what I can. 
So he was big inspiration for like practicing dunks all the time and stuff like that. So um, if I would have made it to the NBA, that's kind of where I would have been as far as like my role. Go in there, Adam, set a freaking good pick for Chauncey Billups. Roll to the basket. They're not They're not going to pass it to you. Carmelo Anthony's going to get the ball on a set play. All we need you to do is cut to the basket and tip in if he misses, dunk it home or something like that. Um, if you're ever, if you're ever standing out there wide open at the three point line, yeah, I guess we'll shoot it, but you better hope you make it. And that's, <laughs> that's tough, right? For a guy like Jeff Trepanier, he's so athletic, but the team's like putting so much pressure on him to, um, give minutes to other players like Allen Iverson, who was with the Nuggets in that era, um, Antonio McDias. Um, so like you miss a three ball, you're out of the game in some yeah. scenarios. So the, the NBA is so hyper-competitive. But um, I don't think I would have lasted that long, even if I did make it. Like, got lucky enough to to get someone to notice me and be like, "Hey, that white guy jumps high. Give him a shot." <laughs> um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know how long I would have lasted. So when I when we talk about the four hundred people that are in the NBA, man, you really got to have a lot going for you. And then also, once you get that birth into the league and you're born into to that new group, that new level of playing, like you have to do so much to maintain that. So talking about like your dedication towards your work where you're like highly structured and you got your girlfriend, but like you have your podcast, you have your job and stuff. And like you do, you know, you've been doing this for years and years now, the stuff, if you can imagine like the body of work that you put in to get to this point is what made it possible for you to be here. Right. So like NBA players don't just get into the league and then start putting up stats and then, you know, you retire someday with a bunch of fans. It's, it's not always like that. People almost don't want you to win, right? They don't want LeBron to take Jordan's throne. No. They don't want um, Trey Young to be better than Luka Doncic. They don't want LaMelo Ball to be playing with his little brother, Leangelo. I don't know why, but they don't want it. They want to say Lamelo is better than Leangelo. And they like that. Then they'll talk trash about Leangelo. So, like, that's just how the basketball world is. And, you know, we'll go back to the social media for a second. Like, everybody has an opinion now, and everyone oh, yeah. can have their opinion read. <laughs> so, um, the challenges of, like, becoming who you want to be most people don't even realize what they're asking for. Right. They really don't. Like, look at, um, I don't know, like Chris Kamen, right? Guy from Grand Rapids. Um, <clears throat> he was never really big into, like, media interviews. You ever yeah. notice that? Yeah. Okay. So he was big-time stud at Central Michigan, seven-footer. Um, they called him Caveman. I don't know if he actually even likes that nickname. Probably not. You know, basketball player <laughs> definitive. But he had long hair and he's kind of like got the Neanderthal look. So people used to call him Caveman Cayman. And there was one game they dominated and they beat Duke or they took him to the buzzer or some crazy shit. Anyway, that's how he got noticed. And then he went on to play for, I think, 13, 14 years in the NBA. The Clippers at one point. He does not like media interviews. From what I've seen, he's done very few. But the funny part about that is he's so good at it. Like when he when he opens up about his life and like who he really is, man, it's fun to listen to. Um, so, but I understand why he's the way he is. 
Um, not everyone is excited to have a microphone thrown in their face. Um, and some of us, like, I think, you know, like, I do know that Chris's father passed. And around that time, he was also considering retirement. So that may have been a factor in why he decided to hang it up. But like, man, imagine going through that as a person. And I've, I've had to go through it. And in the middle of people wanting to talk about where you're going to play next, where you're going to coach next, you're like, just get the hell out of my face. <laughs> like, you don't even know me enough to acknowledge the fact that I'm grieving. Right. So, like, put the mic down and go home. You didn't do your research. Coach Popovich uh, in the NBA, the Spurs coach, he's a lot like that. If you don't do your research before speaking to that guy, he is going to let you know about it. He's going to air you out in front of your peers and make you look <laughs> stupid. And he's disrespectful. He just is. But he's he's so easily annoyed by the by people who don't. I don't think that's disrespect. I think it's, it's, show, it's matching the, the same level of respect that you are showing him. You could say that there, there's that, that is one way to to paint, you know, a narrative on how Coach Pop interacts with the media. One another way to look at it, like from like let's just say the cat. There's different levels to fanhood, even right. There's professional fans, and then there's like yeah. casual fans, and there's people who are very interested, and there's people who are just nominally interested. If you're just like one of these basic NBA fans or a sports fan in general, you just like sports. And for instance, the Spurs were dominant during the late 90s. So you happen to catch some of their games on TV and you saw a post-game press conference and how Pop responded to some of these reporters. You'd be like, this guy's a jerk. Who does he think he is? <laughs> and then you talk to like Ginobili or you hear Duncan's interviews, you hear Parker's interviews, um, and even Becky Hammond. Mm-hmm. And like, who, who was this person to them? And man, do they praise him and talk about what an awesome human being he is and how much they were privileged to learn from him. So you're like, wait, are we talking about the same guy? So the media is, the media is awful because it, they drag you out of the streets and stone you in front of everyone, but they also uh, amplify the good things that you do. So it's two-sided and um, coach pop has taken the perspective of, you know what? I'm not going to honor either of those. I don't want to talk about my accolades and I certainly don't want to talk about any of the stuff going on with our team. Like if you look at Tim Duncan now, (laughs) have you seen him lately? Oh, I've seen him. (laughs) Dude's wilding out throughout his hair. He He had to live under the pressure of someone like coach pop for his entire career. Uh, David Robinson, that kind of set that bar too. you know, the Admiral. Yeah. Yeah, so. well, Dave, Dave Robinson, Navy guy, I'm sure wasn't cool with weed. I don't think Tim Duncan was probably smoking much weed even when he was with the Spurs. But you can tell he's, let's just say it, let's just get it out there. He's let his hair down. Mm. And <laughs> would Coach Popovich coach the Tim Duncan that is now if he came walking into practice like that as the number one draft pick in the country? No. He would have said, get your lazy – entitled selfish ass out of here he had a this guy is the one who had a problem with Kawhi Leonard Kawhi Leonard is like the most dry personality (laughs) you could ever imagine now he's very he's very uh very much his own person so he's gonna have his own opinions on everything he's a strong opinionated person and as you get 
more notoriety and money in the NBA, you start to believe your own shit a little bit more and more, right? But Kawhi and him butted heads. And uh, that was a guy who I would have thought would have been like a career spur. I was yeah. I was surprised when he left that team. So um, it happens for a lot of us. And sometimes the media is the catalyst for that. And I think a lot of people read stuff about Popovich and then read stuff about Kawhi, created their own narrative. Both people heard that narrative. And when the time came to, ta- to sit and talk about it man to man, it was almost like the discussion had already been had. And right, absolutely. Off goes Kawhi. So I I had to be aware of that. Like even now, I'm thinking about that. Like, what if I say this? Because I'm I'm currently in an interview process with a team for our league. Um, I'm actually in the interview process with three teams. So like all three of those teams could very well be watching this live, or if I decide to post it on my page later, get a get a copy of it. And like, wow, what do I what do I what do I not say? Right. But I think for me in, in particular. Why I'm why I speak so freely. Um, I I feel like I've learned from the bad things I did, so that's very important, right? You can't just be a liar out here, like, oh, I I fixed my mistakes, and then you're still screwing up. <laughs> so part of it is I have learned, but I think it's just it's necessary that people know that um, about me, but not because of who I am, but because of who they are, and that it's okay to be honest with yourself yeah. for whoever you are whatever level of work you do in life or whatever level of friendship or relationship you have with someone, you got to be honest with yourself. So like, you know, do I want my new employer hearing about, you know, some of the darker times of my life? Eh, Probably not on the first date, but um, (laughs) it is a part of me. And in fact, I use that part of me to facilitate a better level of communication with people all the time and uh, a better understanding of growth and leadership and, and I've applied those experiences. So while people, you know, could maybe say, Oh, I did 20 years in the military and then, you know, 10 years at a, at a corporation and I'm this, this, and that, this is how my life went. I don't know that a person like that could offer someone like me very much insight into my own life because that's a totally different universe. Like you lived so by the book and so you, you followed all the rules and I just didn't, I broke yeah. every rule. So, but there are a lot of people who are on the fence between those two spectrums, we'll just say. And you kind of have to show them like, well, here's one way you could live. Here's another way you could live. And where does your path look like it's headed? And how can I help you get there? And and let me just tell you, like, you're going to make some mistakes. So when you do, aren't you going to be glad that you could talk to me about it? Because like, you know, I've already done that or experienced that or know someone who has. Instead of like, you have a coach that's, um, got a really clean resume or, you know, like a lot of coaches, like they're, they're supposed to be beyond reproach almost, which I find insulting. Everybody wants coach to be like this perfect personality, right? Like, like Tom Izzo, for instance, like people have been at his neck lately, but like before that, I mean, it's almost like Tom Izzo is like a basketball God, bro. Uh, coach Krasewski, coach Calipari. So two of those three I've had personal conversations with, and I'll tell you, they're not God. The only reason I know that is because I was actually in the same room with them. Otherwise, I would probably believe it too. But <laughs> um, they have personal character defects. Uh, they just also have PR staffs and people that shield them and insulate them from making mistakes. And they've also learned not to make big career-ending mistakes, but they make mistakes. 
uh, uh, Coach Krasinski is probably one of the only coaches I could ever think of that coached it almost his entire career. Now he came from like a different college before he coached at uh at Duke. I think he coached in the Air Force or something. But Coach K, like very rare that you hear of a guy with no scandals, you know, nothing but winning and success, the same school, and then just retire, you know, like like John Wooten or somebody. It's pretty rare, right? There's everybody else falls into the not them category. The right. I you know, the <laughs> I'm a, a regular human being category. Right. And so you have to understand that about like sports in general is that um, while a lot of people admire the athletic lifestyle or the athletic professional sports lifestyle, it's, it's a lifestyle like any other lifestyle. Now, when the only difference that changes that conversation sometimes is the money. But a lot of people don't make that big career life-changing money. I mean, average NFL superstar, maybe. Average NFL starter, kind of. But then let's look at that. Let's say you're, uh, for my guys, the Broncos, Deshaun Hamilton was drafted a couple of years ago with Cortland Sutton. Cortland Sutton has gone through a major injury. He's back on the field now. He's making big money. He's like Denver's number one receiver. But Deshaun is going through an injury right now. Um, he may never make it back. He may never make it back to the football field. He was great at Penn State, but, you know, he's, there's no guarantee he's going to be a top receiver in the NFL ever again or even break the Broncos' uh, starting roster. So my point is, it's like, um, how does Deshaun Hamilton back bounce back? I don't know. It's going to be tough, but there's a lot of stories like his, and people think, oh, well, what a lucky guy. He got to play in the NFL. Well, if he only played one or two years and then got injured, let's just say he's not going to have like life sustaining wealth. No, it's just, it's not that much money. You don't get paid that much money. Um, and even people like, Oh, I don't know. There's some, there's some stories out there. You could look up of athletes who've gone broke. Lots of, I think I actually saw, uh, who was it that played for the Celtics? Uh, Walker. Number oh, five. Antoine Walker. Antoine Walker was working at a uh, nightclub in Chicago when I bumped into him. Now he's doing okay, actually. He's probably got a lot more money than I know about. He's doing fine. Let's just say that. But at one point, he was working at a nightclub. Yeah. So, like people that put all this belief and you know admiration toward athletes just because of the money, like they they just don't understand how much is there or what isn't there. And also what needs to be talked about is for every pro pro, like good pro, there's 500 athletes who didn't make it. And they're also part of this community, this basketball community. So the guy who makes $1,500 a month is, is essentially part of the supply chain for the guy who makes 1.5 million a month. Why is that? Because without the minor leagues existing, if you didn't go straight to junior college or straight to college and into the pros, you'd never have a way for any of these guys to make it back to the NBA. And there's, there's tons of success stories of guys who didn't take that traditional path to the NBA. Let's there's also a lot Andre, of smaller. Go ahead. Let's just say, look at Andre Ingram dude was in like the development, like was one of the first people in the, the D league when it was still the D league, then was in it when he went to the G league. And then what was it like two, uh, three years ago or so he had that game where, 
uh, played for the Lakers, like one of their last games of the season, dropped 20 or whatever, like just fucking balled yep. out. And like that was one of the first times that I can think of for the NBA where like you saw an example of what the G League could do for a player and for the team. And it was a shining He's moment. not making a million bucks right now. He probably has a nice car and a nice house, but. Yeah. But like, I mean, do you want to talk about, you know, a guy who put in the time, never gave up and then found his found yeah. his way well after when most people probably would have written him off. I mean, I think technically, you know, that that year or that game where he played for the Lakers, I, I think that was one of the first games he literally had ever gotten to play in the NBA. And the dude was like, yeah. what, 30 235 something like 31, that. 31 and yeah. it never happens without several things that are weird as hell taking place one of them being players getting rest for the playoffs another one being uh there's such a thing in the NBA as a 10-day contract yep and if Jeremy you Lynn. get called up from yeah if you get called up from the G League you only have a certain amount of times that you can go back down yep to the G League before like they restructure how you can be offered Yep. And it's kind of just like part of the collective bargaining agreement. But anyway, he had only have he can only have so many call ups. So he hadn't had a call up, and that also kind of speaks to like there was other people on his team who did get called up, and he wasn't one of them. And yeah. so then that window opens at the end of the season where teams are tanking and other teams are trying to rest up for the playoffs. And so you have the need to bring somebody into the gym. And I'll tell you what, if I would have showed up to the Lakers practice facility that day. And showing I could play a little, they might assign me to a one-day contract just because sometimes, like, in, in college and in high school, all of a sudden, like, you don't have a guy to put in the game. It happens. It's weird. <laughs> sometimes it happens. But sometimes you're, like, going on the road, you got six players or something. Anyway, um, so, you know, like, there's just a perfect storm of things going on to where he got this offering. And, hell, if he didn't make the most of it. Um, but, yeah, Andre Ingram's not making – millions of bucks, but without Andre Ingram, let's just say this, there's no Kobe. Kobe is so influential that guys like Andre Ingram have never had a basketball dream if Kobe didn't exist. So therefore, because of Ingram's passion and belief in himself, that overall energy is returned to the game via practice facility filled with players where Kobe can go in there and get his work done to become better for me and you when the lights get turned on sitting in those seats that we pay so much money for. <laughs> so like, and Kobe knows that I'm, I'm pretty sure they met. Uh, and he, and of, of course, Ingram was just enamored and blown back by it. And, and yeah, that was a beautiful story. But for Kobe, how much of a factor was that in his actual life? Right. Very, very small. So those people that are in the, the, the TBL that I work in, they may not understand how important they are to the game of basketball, but they're very important. Junior college coaches, very important to the game of basketball. High school coaches, high school assistants, people volunteering at the score table at the high school level. You are important. You are part of something greater. You are putting people in a position to win and explore their talents. And, and a lot of you out there will never get credit, will never get talked about. But I want to say thank you to everybody that's been – even a small piece of my basketball history. Thank you. Because I couldn't have gotten anywhere near this far without these people. And a lot of them probably at some point have felt a little used. The basketball can do that to you. 
Um, you know, you like when the Grand Rapids Drive came into town, for instance, you know, I had some volunteer people on my staff with the Cyclones that ended up going to work for them. But I think they were volunteering for them as well. And like you would think, well, you transition from a team like mine to the NBA, you're going to start getting paid big money, right? Well, I don't think that happened for like, you know, like our, our prayer, our chaplain, uh, our announcer, and uh, one of our assistant coaches, they all moved up to the G League uh, when they uh, took over the arena. <laughs> but, you know, our, I don't think, I don't think that the G League really understood for those people how important that was for them in their career. And I don't think that the money they were paid really mattered either. They were just like happy to be doing that job, you know? So um, they're a cog in that wheel and the players that you see come down to play for the drive before they head back up to, to the Pistons for a quick touch up off an injury stint, that whole system essentially exists for them. More so for the NBA players that need to rehab or are transitioning back and forth from the G League to the NBA, less so for the people who are career G Leaguers. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like guys who, like me, who are operating in the basketball world, like we're operating so that people more talented than us can have a shot to show those talents at the highest level. Yeah. And in some cases, you know, I can't I can't tell you that I, I, I think it's a very small percentage or likelihood but i can't tell you for absolute certain that i will never coach the nba i can't say that my life's not over so potentially that could happen um and i will share some success stories from our league of people that have played in the nba um i actually i don't need to say their names because i hate when people name drop to like say oh our league got them there my team got them there but there's guys in our that have played in the tbl since it's been in existence um that have gotten onto the g league so that's huge. That's huge right there. That is, that's why we do it. That's why we do it so that that kid can get his chance. And that hopefully that chance results in something. Now, one of them I will mention Quentin Williams, man, this kid is so gifted. He's the actual animation for 2k. Um, dunk oh, I was going to say, that's why I recognize the name. Yeah. Yeah. Quentin is like a amazing dunker, like something like when I was real young. Anyway, He's now getting a chance with Golden State, and I coached him with the Patroons, and like, so freaking happy for that kid. Like, you know, just you know, of course you see yourself in in that thirty, that jersey number thirty that he's wearing right now. Like, oh man, for a brief instant, you know. But then the rest of it is like, I'm so happy for you, dude. Like, <laughs> I just can't wait to see the success that you're about to undergo, and I'm so glad that we could be a part in that. And then for other teams in our league that are the guys that I haven't had nothing to do with that have come up through other coaching staffs and such that are going on, like you still sharing that experience with them. Um, let's see, Kevin Young, you might not know that name. You might, it was a big time name at Kansas. And then he went to the NBA and he washed back out a little bit, but then he played in our league and then he got back on, I think with golden state as well. And like, <clears throat> I was so freaking happy for Kevin. Like, I knew he had the talent. I knew it. I was like, how is this guy not in the NBA? But like I said, there's a lot of things that sometimes can keep you out of that 400. And so like to see Kevin Young playing back at that level again, like it's just so awesome. Like, I don't know how he would have done it without us in a sense. And I don't know how we would keep up as a league if we couldn't talk about success stories like his. Right. So it's a symbiotic thing that's going on there. And, um, 
that's very much a representation of how life works. Um, you can't get anywhere without a little help from somebody. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, I don't mean to sound like folky or like, you know, <laughs> but like, that's the honest truth of it. Like, for instance, like, let's say someday you achieve the level of success that like something like Joe Rogan does. You could probably point back at all, like the interviews you did with people who weren't exactly a listers that helped you get to be in a place where you're prepared enough to handle that kind of a, um, a following and, and, and the people you would talk to at that point. Right. So yeah. like, I hope you make it to that level. Um, and if you are, you know, ever that rich or famous, you have to give me my props. <laughs> but um, that's well, at that that's point, life in general. In the, you'll be in the uh, NBA coaching, so we'll we'll mutually have made it, and we'll be like, I'll be sitting courtside, and I'll I'll just ask that you give me that like Drake status, where I can like <laughs> yeah. have the seats right next to the bench, and I can be on the court, and I can like kind of be like, oh, you you should be doing this. I think <laughs> let me shoot a couple ever... of threes horribly. Um, <laughs> I think like what you're talking about, the, the reason that that is actually somewhat based in reality is because once you know what you're good at, you can go really far. So just yeah. figure out what you're really good at and start working on that for you, me talking to you outside of our listeners or whatever, anyone seeing on this podcast right now, just do what you're good at, bro, and work on that and you'll go really far. And so for like, for me, if I was ever going to be at the NBA, I think I would want to work with like on the, on the basketball staff side, not in sales or promotions or anything like that, but on the basketball staff side, but on the uh, player, like off the court behavior. I don't know what the, there, there's actually a structured part of the NBA. That's like that right now. I know a girl that works in it. Um, Rebecca Marmalejo. She used to work for like the Raiders in that role. She would basically help players transition from college to uh, the NFL. And then she kind of took that one step further to like encompass things like financial literacy. Um, I was gonna say, it's post. almost like a PR person, but also like a personal assistant sort of too. It's like a hybrid position. Yeah. And it's helpful to have someone in that role who understands, you know, people like, you know, at a great, uh, very like intuitive level or has a great deal of experience, right? Like to be able to say, oh, I did this, this or that, and you should do this, this or that. So an advisory role, but like, you're working with the biggest name NBA players. So it's strange to think that like someone like LeBron would ever ask someone like me for advice. But if LeBron ever, uh, I don't know, went through an addiction mm. and I was on that coaching staff, you bet your butt that I, that they would be calling on me to talk to him about it. And there's people like that on every staff now, but like it's becoming more and more of a thing where, NBA teams are starting to hire people to help these athletes become better people and manage their, their problems that they run into and their paid staff. So like, I would love to be that kind of a coach um, because I feel like I could walk into any NBA player's office or have them sit down in my office and cut through the, the bullshit real fast and get down right to like the, so what's going on? You know, like, 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 like the Latrell Sprewell. Why, why are you choking your coach? man? Why are you choking <laughs> PJ Car Carlissimo? You know, if he and we just have a quick laugh like me and you, and then I say, No, really, why why are you choking that son of a bitch? Like, are you serious right now, Latrell? And I'm gonna cut into him. I'm gonna be like, Yeah, you don't know me. I work for the Knicks. You've probably met me one time, but any idiot could tell you you're wrong, man. You're wrong. You can't be choking your coach. You know you can't. And then he'd be like, Well, you don't know what was going on. Okay, let me hear your side of the story. 
And then I'm going to bring you back down to earth and tell you why you're still wrong and why there's no justification for it ever. You don't put your hands on, on a coach. Now, let's also talk about the fact that it did happen. What are we going to do now, Latrell? Where do you go from here? Uh, you're lucky if you ever get a job in the NBA again. And what's that going to mean to you if you're not working in the NBA? Do you know who you are outside of your NBA job? Have you figured right. that out yet? Are you so busy worried about being the best person you can be within the NBA that you've lost focus of what the person looks like on the outside of the NBA? Maybe. People lose themselves all the time in this fame, greed, and and Hollywood BS, as I call it. Um, basketball is a show. It's an entertainment game. It's like, you know, they used to have gladiatorial arenas. This is what that is watered down now. Get everybody sits around in a circular fashion watching guys in the middle do something to keep them entertained, right? Um, so when you're playing the game, it's more like a job, but as a fan, you're just wanting to watch something fun. So yeah. uh, we have to realize that at the end of the day that when the whistles stop blowing, we're people. We walk off that court with emotions, thoughts, families, and scenarios and situations going through our head just like anybody else right when it stops. And in fact, there's one thing I talk about, like for the teams that I work for that I, I try to help get involved with sales. I try to help get involved with promotions and anything I can do to help the minor league team, because you're usually kind of short staffed or not in the sense short staffed. You just don't have a ton of resources to spread around. So you got to wear multiple hats. Right. So, uh, I just try to impress upon them the, um, uh, I lost my train of thought. We were talking about, um, uh, oh, just like, okay. So, so like you go into these front office meetings and you talk with people over and over about like, what time's the game? Well, the game's at 12 o'clock. What day? It's on Sunday. What, uh, we got cheerleaders. Yeah, we got you. Okay. And do we get some, uh, an announcer? We got an announcer. We get the stat guy. I think the stat guy will be there. You got a stat guy. Maybe call the stat guy. Okay. Um, what about the, the team we're playing? Are they on the way? It sounds like they're on the way. Okay, the refs here yet? Refs are here. All right, is the is the floor swept? Did we get the concession stand set up? Um, is there good parking spaces out back for everybody to pull up to? Uh, what did I forget? What you forgot is that basketball, the actual playing part of it, is like... The last thing. <laughs> it's like 10% of your job. Yeah. It's like 10% of your job especially as like a coach in, in a front office and an owner, the actual like time that you're spending in the, in the gym when the event is happening, it's like 10% of what you do. Yeah. Uh, the other 90% is trying to make sure that event is filled. Right. But the work that goes into it. So like it's a lot going on behind the scenes and then fans just wait for the finished product on, on Sunday or game day or whatever. And seem to forget that, those days that took place in between that person was spending time working on themselves or their yeah. craft. Yeah. So like, uh, people put too much, pre like, like too much pressure and too much, there's too much surrounding competition. Sometimes people put too much into it. They make it too big of a deal. And yeah. I know that a lot of that's the networks trying to get you to tune in. And we fall into that. We fall guilty of that all the time. And people are always overhyping stuff in general. But, like, uh, it's a game. Okay? So, like, you have to understand that for what, what it is. If, if, if sports are your – like, 
one of your favorite things in life. And then you ask yourself, well, what are the things that make you happy on a scale of one to 10? Where do, where would you put sports? If you're putting sports out of 10, you're going to be a depressed person half the time, especially if you're a Lions <laughs> fan, but like it should be at about a seven sports make me happy, but they're not the thing that makes me the most happy. What makes you the most happy? Well, other things in life. Um, <clears throat> because like even the most successful athletes, like look at Jordan, look how much time Jordan spent post-career dealing with people who were critiquing him for being over competitive. Yeah. He was so good at his job that it was like offensive to people. Oh yeah. Oh, Mike, we know you can dunk. Oh yeah. You got four rings. You got five rings. Oh yeah. You're the greatest. We all know. Imagine being one of his peers and hearing about him all the time. You know, and then he comes walking in with that charming smile and he's tall. And they just want to, all the media just want to talk to him and you're Charles Barkley. You can see it written all over Charles's face what Michael Jordan did to that man. <laughs> <laughs> Isaiah Thomas, too. Isaiah is bitter, man. Like, still. It's just strange what sports do to people. Like Isaiah could be like, he has a great smile too, right? Isaiah has a great smile. He's very charismatic. He's got like that little dimple on the side. And he's just, you know, even at 50, he's still got that young charm about him. And he's so positive and encouraging. And he's not one of these people who swears a lot or, or is very grotesque or vulgar. And then you bring up Michael Jordan and his face goes, (laughs) yeah michael yeah we had some games together you know the whole air goes out of the room and it's just like dang man do you even like michael jordan well honestly (laughs) if we're talking honestly and we we, you know i'm not going to get any backlash hell no i hated that guy he was the reason i fought with my wife half the time because i couldn't win the playoff game and i went home pissed and she tried to coddle me and I'm so used to Jordan talking shit to my face that I only respond to negative reinforcement. And she's being too nice, so I'm going to yell at her. Honey, don't tell me I did a good job. Tell me I'm nothing. So, like, you know. Oh, dude. Losing is one of the hardest things to deal with. I, that's why I've uh, I've hated refs my entire life, but I finally started to understand. And some of the rest of my league are probably going to laugh their ass off when they hear this. But, like, um, I finally understand refs. You know, I've started to get less text because of it, but um, they have a hard job because at the end of the game, one team's happy as hell that they were there and thanking them for coming. And the other team's pissed off that they even exist, questioning their very existence. Like, how the hell are you even a ref, let alone a human being? You consider yourself a human after that call, you disgusting piece of bleep. So, yeah. like, being a ref's hard. Those people are very much a part of the history of the game of basketball. One I'm going to call out real quick is a guy named Ronnie Nunn. He coached in that, or I mean, he refed in that Jordan era. They're in the finals. He's refed every big player you can think of. Ronnie is a very likable guy. Um, And obviously, when you hear his resume, you just want to like him, right? Like, oh, you're Ronnie Nunn. But like, we don't know Ronnie. Ronnie's probably been in a lot of scenarios where Michael Jordan's just tearing him a new one on that (laughs) sideline. We can't hear it. And just come on, Ron. You gotta be kidding me are you gonna call that right now after all this time i've known you and he's thinking jordan i don't care how long you've known me a foul's a foul well he didn't even go to his strong hand when he dribbled you're rewarding that weak drive to the lane mike back off it's a foul it's a foul it's a foul 
If I keep letting you talk to me like this, old John Starks down there thinks he's going to talk to me like that too. Now get out of my face because I'm not going to listen to John and I'm done <laughs> listening to you. And that's a rough for you. They, they're like, man, they're like the jail guard, dude. They're like the guy that no one likes, but they got a job and you kind of need them to get your job done. <laughs> you know, so like it's a love-hate thing. You're like, oh, thanks for calling that call for me. Two possessions later. Are you kidding? So like um, there, when I talk about like all the people in basketball, those people are often forgotten too. At the end of the game, have you ever seen a ref get interviewed? No. They've never came and said, "Uh, Pete, let's talk about this real quick. Uh, At the end of the fourth quarter there where Odell Beckham was running down the sideline and reached behind his head and caught the ball one-handed and slinked two feet in bounds, was there ever a doubt in your mind that he was going to catch that? And did you feel like throwing a flag for pass interference or were you just in awe that he caught the ball? What were your thoughts on that play? They don't ask refs that shit, you know, but he's thinking that. He's obviously, you know, we're human, man. I mean, it's good refs know how to take their own personality out of the situation, obviously, and be non-biased, but that's hard to do. And uh, even after they're done being non-biased, they can return to being biased. I'm sure refs are fans <laughs> at some level, you know? Yeah. So um, that's that's like like that's kind of like why I think your podcast is going to be successful because you get to now look at – everyone's careers and and unpack all of that in a different angle than what's probably like traditionally taken. And like, I would be so upset with you if we just came in here and talked about, you know, the 21 point game I had for the, uh, for the battle Creek Knights, you know, or the 52 point game I had in the Benton Harbor city league or the dunk titles that I've won in grand Rapids or the, uh, you know, I like talking about the cyclone sometimes, but it's also old news to me. That happened a long time ago. Um, like, oh, how many people did you guys used to average attendance? You know, like that. That's sports, and like I told you, like before we hopped on this call, um, that's all good and fun to talk about. But like that stuff, just at the end of the day, they're just numbers and stats and locations, kind of like data. They're not mm-hmm. anything that's super important. You know, what's more important is like what you really want to learn. And you know, I guess like on a podcast, learning about somebody is like, who are they? You know, like that, uh, just to bring in the humanity of it all into perspective so that we can all sit down and chat for a minute instead of like, now I've been victim of this where people consider me like this great athlete and I walk into the room and I have to act like that. And that's really not my personality. And I kind of put on a face for a minute. Hi, I have a visitor here. Everyone say hi. It's my girlfriend. I love the girlfriend doing that song. So in about five, I've got to get off here. But um, we're all real people. We got real girlfriends, real wives, real kids. Um, and I know I certainly don't compare to like that stigma of like some mysterious big name athlete. But if you've ever looked at someone like that, just understand that like there's a whole other side to everyone. Um, and one of the reasons that I'm friends with a lot of these big name athletes is because like I know how to address them and and rotate with them on that level instead of being like a fanboy. Right. Um, and trust me, like some of the people I've met, like I really wanted to be a fanboy, but you got to hold it in. Same. Um, Absolutely the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to hold it together and try not to ask stupid questions and, and just be like, just appreciate the fact that you're getting to talk to somebody who you admire and uh, 
and try to learn what you can from it quickly or maybe get a snippet from them of something that can help you out within life rather than like, you know, oh my God, I remember Trace McGrady when you dunked all over uh, Alonzo Morning. Like, yeah, he's going to smile and remember that. But like the moment that sentence ends, there's some staleness in the air. And you're going to have to ask your next question or be gone quickly because this guy's got stuff to do. So I always try to treat my interactions with, with people that I admire um, if I can, by doing a little research before I get to meet them and then having a few questions, a few questions ready for them. And then also being ready for whatever answer they give me. Sometimes you won't like it. Um, Like for instance, like, Hey, I saw, uh, you know, some, some kid might call you up, John. I saw you had a coach on there. He's a basketball coach kind of guy. How do I get involved in basketball? You pass him my number and then uh, we get him, you know, through a combine or something, but at some point we decide, you know, he's not going to make cuts. He didn't make cuts. And then he comes back to you and oh, that guy, that Adam guy's an asshole. He cut me from his team, you know, and like the whole, the whole view changes. Right. And that's, you know, that's the harsh reality of it is that basketball isn't for everyone, but at the same time, like you want to keep yourself open to potentially opening doors for people because someone did that for me. Yeah. Um, and still do that for me. So I don't want to just turn people away just because I don't know them or they don't have the most impressive resume or whatever. So I had something like that happen a while ago. Someone that I knew through booking shows and just being a part of the music scene around this area <clears throat> person sent me a Facebook message many years ago. And they're like, your friend Frank's an asshole. And I was like, <laughs> all right, like context, like what, what happened? And Frank, you know, has been on this show a couple of times and, and definitely one of those people who like was in a band, got to a level of success, pivoted, became more of the behind the scenes kind of person, tour managing, teching, you know, slinging merch, whatever, whatever yeah. he needed to do to be in the industry. And he has carved out, you know, a successful career that's more successful than him being the front man of a band that he started when he was in high school. That's cool. And it's a very great story. Uh, it was like the second podcast I'd ever done. And he's been on subsequently other times. Uh, and then even more to the point, you know, during the pandemic when his whole career was gone and he couldn't do anything, he started getting into the vintage t-shirt game and is killing that. And so again, it's, he is someone who has learned how to adapt to his, like to survive. Um, so I always love talking to people like that and having those kind of people in my life, but he was tour managing this band and this dude's like, dude, this guy's a fucking asshole. Da, 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 da. And I was like, well, what did he do? And he goes, all right. So, you know, we have the show tonight. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, it didn't do very well. And I was like, okay. And then he's like, and then he asked me for like, I gave him the money and then he asked me for more. And I was like, well, did you fulfill the contractual obligation? Like you were, it's a guarantee. Like you guarantee that you would pay this band this amount of money. Did you try shorting them? He's like, well, yeah, we didn't have the money. And I was like, doesn't fucking matter. You signed a contract. He is collecting what you said you would pay. And I go, so he's not an asshole. He's an asshole in your book because he got more money than you, you know, had or whatever. So now you had to pay out of pocket. And that's a loss as a booking person. You had to be willing to, to gamble on yourself that if you weren't going to make that that you had to come up with that money somehow or mm-hmm. maybe this is a learning experience for you where you advance the show and go hey man ticket sales aren't doing that well would you be willing to take less money on the guarantee and we'll do a back-end deal to where potentially if you help promote this whatever you'll stand to actually make more than your guarantee there's tools and tricks that you can do to have made this not 
what it turned into on your end. And he was like, yeah. And I go, so he's not an asshole. He's a good, he's good for his band. That's why he's a good tour manager. That's why he's good at his job because he got the fucking bag for his band because that's what he needs to do. And that's what his job is. I go, so you're mad at someone for doing their job. And he was like, I mean, I didn't really look at it like that. And I was like, again, perspective, man. Like I know, like I've been there. I've had shows not do well. And I've literally had to like before the show is even done. I go, the show ain't making the money I said it needed to, or that I promised other people. And I went to the ATM and fucking emptied out my own bank account and paid people to make it right. And yeah. it's one of those like where you're and like, there's been bands where I'm like, look, this is all, this is literally all I have. I'm showing you my bank account right now. You can see, I literally just emptied it out to give you this. I get paid and this day or this, whatever I'll meet you or I'll pay you. I'll wire you whatever. So we can make it right. And those are the sacrifices. Sometimes you, as someone who is in a position of power of, of whatever you're only and when you are in a business in any capacity, and this really just goes beyond business, but life, you're only as good as your word and what you say you will do and following through on it. And so in that, capacity, like that, that capacity, I've always, you know, old school as hell when it comes to stuff like that. Like if I say, I'm going to do something, then I'm going to do something. Um, and I feel like you're very much the same way, like just in the brief interactions we've had, uh, that you are who you are unapologetically, it seems at times. And I always gravitate toward people like that. You know, like we talked about our mutual friend Han that put us in contact with each other. It's, uh, it's one of those things. Hey, where he, seems, he seems like the same kind of person where he, uh, you know, he is who he is unapologetically. He, if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do something and he'll follow through. Even if it takes a little bit longer than he, than maybe he initially thought, but those are the kind of people I like surrounding myself with that I like to get to know because even if there's nothing to quote unquote gain from each other, like if I like, I'm not going to get like free NBA tickets off of you or nothing like that. But the thing is, is <laughs> in this conversation, you know, it's, it's reminded me of when I used to play back, pick up basketball with my friends. Granted, I never could dunk on people. Like I'd put the rim at nine feet and I could dunk on some people, but you know, it's one of those where like, as you were talking about dunking on people, I'm like, oh man, I remember playing some pickup ball when I was a kid and playing, you know, two on two, same thing down like yeah. nine, nine, 10, 10, whatever, like playing to that last point. Yeah. Friend, friend went to shoot it. I I knew it was going to come up short. Cause you know, being a Dennis Rodman fan, I learned to study how people's, you know, how they shoot the trajectory, like all that kind of stuff. That was my thing. I played big for a small person and I remember cool. going up, went to like dunk and I realized it was like same thing circling in bounced and it looked like it was going to go in. So I didn't go, but I was coming at it from the baseline and I went uh -huh. to jump the dunk, realized it was going to go in. So I kind of like ducked under the rim because again, nine foot and then saw somehow that it wasn't going in and just put my hand behind me and, and got it and won the game like that nice. All, dude, like right there. And I remember going like ape shit, but it was just like, yeah, it's a nine foot rim, whatever, who gives a shit. But it's like, if you've never dunked on someone, you're never going to understand just like the visceral, like machismo you feel of just like, like, like there's a reason why LeBron and all those dudes just like flex like a motherfucker on people when they do it. Cause it feels fucking great. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it does not. <laughs> I got, I'll, I'll say this and then I really got to run. I even have, yeah. I have to use the restroom too, but um, yeah. so I hate to cut you short, but uh, I met a dude in jail once who hated the Denver Broncos. You know, and we're we're all in Colorado at this time, and he's just talking so bad about the Broncos. And I was happy they were coming on TV because that's the only, like the only bright part of my day when you're locked up or something. So I was like excited, and here comes this guy hating on my parade and hating on the Broncos. And I kind of um, 
had a chance to talk to him just while we were sitting there. And I was like, you know, what don't you like about football, man? And, oh, they pay him all these millions, you know, and he had all these typical complaints that people do have about uh, the NFL. Oh, everyone treats them like gods. And, uh, uh, oh, everyone just thinks John Elway is the second coming. And, and I don't like that cocky SOB. And da, da, da. So he was really negative, right? And so I said, well, and he's like, just sports are just joke anyway. You know, he was really being critical. So I said, I said, well, do me a favor. I said, put your hand up like this. So I put my hand up and then he put his hand up in front of mine. I said, now push on my hand. So he tried to push on my hand and I gave him a little bit of resistance. And I said, now this time I'm going to ask you to put your hand up and I'm going to bet you my lunch tray that I can push your hand back further than you can push mine back toward me for, for my lunch tray. So in a lot of times in jail stuff, you gamble your food away or whatever. So this, you know, now people are starting to listen to us because they hear that going on and they're like, what's going on over here? So he's like, well, what the hell? Why would I do that? Why would I gamble my lunch tray? I was like, well, I mean, maybe you think you could beat me. Maybe you think you could push my hand further in the other direction than I can push yours. And he's kind of summing up the situation and realizes I'm a younger guy, maybe a little bit stronger. He's getting old. And he's like, man, I ain't finna gamble you my breakfast tray. And I said, well, I understand why, because you're making a logical decision. You don't want to go hungry, right? I said, but you could have two breakfast trays. Aren't you hungry? Don't you want some for later? I said, so come on, just bet me. I don't even care if I lose my breakfast tray to you. I just want to, I just want you to do this with me. So he's like, fine. So we still, you know, we have like a, a pushing war with our hands and I win it. And then I pull his breakfast over to my side of the table and everybody makes an ooh and an ah. And then I push it back to him and I go, I don't want your breakfast. I just was going to prove to you that you've got a pussy mindset about the NFL and you're just an old negative Nancy about it. <laughs> and I go, the reason I like the NFL is because they go out there. Like we talked about the center. They get one of the strongest guys on the planet and they plan him right in the middle of the field. And then the defense goes and finds the nastiest dude from the neighborhood, the biggest, heaviest, strongest with the big bulky neck, the big boot, big butt and the calf muscles. They throw him in front of that guy on the other side of the ball. And then they tell those two guys, as soon as this ball starts moving, you got to push him that way and he's got to push you this way. And that's football. Just real simple. And the only difference is if you push him over that way and you can do that enough times, I'm going to pay you millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> and so all of a sudden it gets interesting. So really, if I'm one of these big, huge guys, I just got to shove that other big, huge guy around a few times. And if I do that enough, people are going to like it. and They're going to pay me millions of dollars. Hell, put me in the trenches, coach. You know, if you're built like that. So I was like, you know, you're, you're probably not an athlete, man. You know, I'm looking at this old man. You probably were never an athlete. I was like, but if you were, and they would pay you money to do that, wouldn't you try? Yeah. You know, obviously the answer is yeah. If I'm a 275 pound, you know, guy who spits out iron for breakfast, I'm going to jump in there and try and earn that money. So I said, no, well, that's that's what the, the sports and competition in general are all about. One person putting up a fight and the other person trying to stop them from putting up that fight and take the fight right out of them and show everybody else that they're the better fighter. And I go, so then that's just alignment. I go, 
you really don't want to bet me for your breakfast tray to see who can run around fastest around this cell cell block. You know, you're an old man. So I said, that's why we like watching these people because they're fast, they're strong, they're athletic, they're tough as nails. And, uh, and they're playing, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of money at stake, you know, and that's why we enjoy the sport and that's why people get into it. So he kind of like heard me. And at one point he's like, well, that's, I'll, I'd rather root for the Raiders than the Broncos. I said, there, there you go. You got it. You're a fan now. You don't like the Broncos, but you like seeing them lose. So pick for, go ahead, root for the Raiders. I don't even care. I hate the Raiders, but I'd rather see you like the Raiders than you just be a basher of sports and, and what we do out there all day and kind of diminish and turn us all into these mindless grunts and people without emotion and people who are unfairly paid uh, and people who are unfairly idolized, you know, because <laughs> when it comes down to it, being that guy that's out there in the trenches, I mean, that guy's like we said, we talked about a little bit ago, he's putting in a lot of work um, to be in that position. So um, I know you're probably used to doing the outro, but I got to go. So, yep. and uh, I really enjoyed today's chat. I want to do it again, yep. um, but I'm, I'm assuming you've got 20 people lined up. So I will wait my turn to chat again. And like, um, I just really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks for being flexible with uh, the the constant uh, changing of schedules <laughs> between the two yeah, of us. Yeah, yeah. So thank yeah, you for yeah, that. No and good talking to you, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, enjoy your bathroom break. <laughs> <laughs> okay, brother. I will. I'll uh, look forward to seeing you the show, so we can watch again, and I can uh, overly critique myself. There you go. <laughs> Have a good one. All right, man. See you. So that was my chat with Adam. Uh, rather lengthy, and like I said, very engaging uh, to me. Uh, just getting to hear someone, you know, essentially tell their life story through the game of basketball. Um, it was kind of a trip, you know, listening to Adam at times. And there were so many times I wanted to interject and be like, oh, that's that's really interesting. Let me ask you this question. But I realized if I would have done that, that I would have kind of derailed the story. And, and I just it's almost like watching a movie sometimes when someone just can kind of go like that, where you're just like, I'm so enthralled. I don't even know, like, uh, where does it go next? What happens next? I just keep going. Um, so for me, this was a lot of fun just to hear the story uh, of a person and their journey through basketball and where it's taken them. And uh, just the, I guess, like, for me, it, it just was really interesting to hear how he never gave up. Um, and I know that sounds so stupid and so obvious. Like, yeah, well, of course he didn't give up. But it's like, when you have that many setbacks, so many people would have just been like, oh, fuck it, I guess I'm, I'm done. And Adam didn't. And I think that's, you know, as he kind of said in the chat, I think I honestly think that's what makes him such a great coach. I mean, I've never seen him coach. I don't, I've never talked to anyone that he has coached. But I think it's one of those that like when I just hear him talk, you can hear the passion. You can hear that, you know, he's been there. And I think that's that's the thing, you know, in music, whether, you know, podcasting music whatever there's this authenticity that and you can tell that adam is one of the like a real person he's a real real motherfucker been through some shit and that he hasn't let it get him down and that when he can talk to his players i think that's what they can see in him is that he's been there he's been where they are he knows and he can help them and he can you know coach them literally through uh, the things they're going through to be better to to have more success and all that kind of stuff and and to me i think sometimes 
it goes back to something we've talked about so much on this podcast, which is pivoting. You know, maybe you realize, like, you're not going to be this, but you can pivot, and you can still have success, and you can be successful. And maybe sometimes you can bring out the better of other people. Um, actually, I was reminded of that. I had just gotten tattooed this last uh, Friday as I went on recording this, and my tattoo artist, Chris, uh, who you've actually heard on this podcast twice now, um, we were talking and, and, you know, we were talking about something, uh, personal to both of us. And, you know, I kind of mentioned my chat with Dewey and something that him and I talked about quite a bit that I've also said on this podcast, you know, talking about, uh, the giving and taking, uh, and how you have to kind of have that volleying relationship and exchanging of energy to kind of have meaningful relationships. But it was in this conversation with Chris that he had made the comment that, you know, his wife had made the comment to him at one point that he always sees the best in people and he always is able to bring out the best in people and mention the conversation we had had many years ago, which essentially started this podcast, saying that, you know, I have kind of this ability to talk to a lot of people and make them feel at ease to, to tell me things and so forth. And it was one of those where when he kind of said that, I was like, yeah, I guess I guess that is, you know, that is a skill in and of itself to be able to to see the good in people and help kind of coach it out of them. And I think because of what Adam has gone through as you just heard, I think that's what allows him to be a great coach and I think it's what makes people gravitate toward him and learn from him and want to be successful with and for him. Um so this was really fun and and kind of is just a really full circle moment for me uh with the podcast of just you know, talking to people, you know, it started with me talking to, you know, one of our regulars at the bar and getting to learn more about him and, and learn more about Adam and who Adam was. And then Adam and I finally talking and, and sitting down for this conversation. But this whole last few days for me has really just kind of been a great example of not being afraid to take risks and not being afraid of putting yourself out there. Uh, this this whole weekend has just been a reaffirmation for me of uh, strengthening relationships, building new ones, not being afraid to go and try new things. Um, and I don't know, I'm just, I feel very motivated, uh, not only after listening to the chat with, with Adam and seeing his accomplishments, uh, his new job title and so forth and his promotion, but just also a lot of things in my own life and, and a lot of the conversations I've had with people in the last few days. Um, it, it's definitely something that will probably spurn another What I Learned from a Podcast uh, episode here shortly on our Patreon. But without further ado, I don't want to show my own things. Uh, let's wrap up this episode. If you would like to keep up with Adam, uh, you can find him on Instagram at Listen to Coach. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at GR Cyclone CEO. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. I don't really know if he's like a, hey, let's get as many people as possible. So if you want to follow him, follow him on those avenues. Uh, keep up with his progress with uh, his inaugural season with the Pennsylvania Kings, hoping that they bring home a championship or at least have a really great run. Uh, their draft actually starts in a couple of days, and they have the number five pick. And him and I were going back and forth uh, in, in a text or whatever where I was like, trade up, trade up, trade up. And then he was like, why? And I go, because then you're at like – you know, playing a lot of 2K and all that kind of stuff. It's like either if your person's going to fall down anyway uh, into the draft, then I guess you can try to trade up and then get more assets uh, that potentially can help your team either right now or down in the future. Uh, or, you know, just a lot of ways you can do it. But I go, but it always, it never hurts to trade up and, and you know, try to make some big moves. And, and you know, it's your first year, so fuck it. Why not? Uh, so I want to thank Adam for, again for taking the time uh, and being so 
so honest about his journey uh, in life and his in his career. Um, definitely an inspiring story, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope to bring more interesting people uh, outside of the music realm that we're known for having on on the show. Um, and uh, I want to thank our sponsors, as always, for their support. If you can, please go support them. Uh, you heard them in the beginning of the episode, but we're going to run down real quick uh, who they are. And uh, Go support Rockabilia. Go to rockabilia.com. You can use our code BRUTALLY and take 10% off your total purchase order. The Bean Bastard, go to thebeanbastard.com. Pick up some delicious coffee. They have soaps. They have other things. And if you're in the Buffalo, New York area, please stop by and go support the, the local business down there. Uh, they are a great little coffee shop. A lot of great nostalgic items there in the shop. Uh, it'll quickly become one of your favorite coffee shops you've ever been in, as it has become one of mine. And last but not least, On Point Palmade. Use our code BSP15 and take 15% off your total purchase order. Thanks to Manny Mullins and the On Point Palmade crew for their continued support. And for the Brutally Speaking Podcast, I am John, and I'll see you all next week where our episode's guest is Nikki from Necrogoblicon. That was a fun one. I did that while I was actually in Tennessee. I uh, had a lot of fun talking with him, and we kind of go a little all over the place. So stay tuned, and uh, I will see you all next week.